Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Jenk Uger of the Young Turks, who is running for president. Yes, and also has a book out and is also just always an interesting fellow to, to chat with. So, plus, uh, we got the scoop over on breaking points that he was considering the presidential run. Which That's I much right. Appreciate yeah, it. you guys were blindsided. You had no idea <laughs> he said it. And then, well, he had then... to say it twice because the first time he said it, I thought he was just like, you know, saying it facetiously. Yeah, like maybe I'll have to run for president. Yeah, and like I was that. like, oh, yeah. yeah, maybe. And then I didn't follow up. And then he said it again. And it was like, oh, you're serious about this. And then, of course, he announced it on his own show. So lots, lots to get into there about his strategy and what his plans are and why he thinks that this will go differently for him than it's gone for, say, Marianne. Yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, before we get to that, though, there's a bunch of stuff to talk about. So um, we just got this news not too long ago. This is a big deal. Uh, Ex-Trump lawyer Sidney Powell has now pled guilty in elections crime trial. Ooh. So for those of you who don't remember, Sidney Powell was one of the leading voices with the whole like rigged election stuff and the, you know, stop the steal, all that stuff. And she was honestly a tremendous crank who elbowed her way into the room and she had the most cockamamie theories of all of them. She's the person who said like, Hugo Chavez uh, stole the election for Biden. It was Venezuela who did it. She's the one that when some of the um, Dominion lawsuit against Fox Discovery came out, all the producers were like privately talking about how completely insane she is. That's right. And yeah. she was also the one who, you know, she kept saying they were going to release the Kraken, some like bombshell evidence of massive election fraud that, of course, never happened. She was also implicated and now has pled guilty to her uh, affiliation with there was like an election, actual election fraud in terms of them breaching election systems in Coffee right. County, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of, you know, what what she was indicted for and has now taken a plea deal and pled guilty. to. So let me give you the specifics because they're really interesting. So Sidney Powell pled guilty in the Georgia election interference case brought forth by Fulton County D.A. Fannie Willis. Powell appeared in a Georgia courtroom where she pled guilty to six misdemeanor counts, including racketeering on Thursday. This is just one day before her trial was set to begin. So they were trying to cut a deal at the last minute. They mm. cut a deal at the last minute. She avoided felonies. It's six misdemeanors. But, and here's the really big point, Powell receives no jail time. CNN's Marshall Cohen reported that she will have to testify at future trials in the case and write a letter of apology to the people of Georgia. In addition to those conditions, she was sentenced to six years probation, a $6,000 fine, and $2,700 in restitution. So the fact that she has to testify is a big deal because that means she's slipping on somebody. Oh, yeah. That shit, it's like, look, we're going to let you off a little easy. You'll get six misdemeanors, et cetera, no jail time. But what do you have for us? And the answer is, I'm going to start chirping. You know, and who's she going to point her guns at? Who knows? But if it's the big guy, he's in even more trouble. I mean, he's already in a tremendous amount of trouble. I think the New York case, the civil trial for fraud, was like a harbinger of things to come. Yeah. Where it's like, well, your lawyers were incredibly incompetent in that because you can't get a good lawyer anymore because you stiff them, you don't pay right. them, and you don't listen to them. Right. So he's got a bad lawyer in that situation, failed miserably, continues to fail. Now the question is just, we know you're going to lose your business licenses in New York. The question is, how much are you going to pay in a fine? It could be up to $250 million. So he already lost that case. It's just a matter of like basically figuring out what the punishment is going to be in New York. And I feel like that's going to happen in a lot of these other cases, which are criminal cases. The same dynamic is unfolding. Like, he didn't take care of a lot of these people who were co-conspirators. Yeah. In fact, he made a point of saying, like, I'm not paying for that one's uh, attorney fees. 
And so the per what do you think is going to happen? Of course they're going to turn on you, you idiot. And he stabs people in the back all the time. He did it as president all the time, threw people under the bus like nothing. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. I think people are still operating on an outdated analytical framework when it comes to Trump and the level of issues that he faces now. And this really did hit home for me with the uh, New York civil fraud case where it was like, oh, no, he's he's already lost. They're only debating now how big the penalty financial penalty is going to be. And so for really, and I mean, in a certain sense, the first time in his business career and certainly since he's been um, a national pol political figure, he's actually facing some consequences. Like the walls are for real actually closing in, which has always been the meme before. Like, how is he going to wriggle out of this one? And then he easily does. Well, this time he's not wriggling out. And you not only have Sidney Powell taking a deal, pleading guilty, agreeing to, you know, testify in these trials. There's also a lot of speculation about that dude, Kenneth Cheesebro, who is the pro-Trump attorney. <laughs> Cheesebro, who, who was at the center <laughs> of a lot of the, like, you know, I know his name is ridiculous, whatever, my name is also ridiculous, so we no, won't judge him for that. No, this is way more but ridiculous. Get out of here. Anyway, <laughs> um, he was really at the heart of, like, crafting some of these fake elector schemes and concocting these, like, supposed legal theories. His trial is slated to begin on Friday, so a lot of people are looking at him like, hmm, wonder if he is going to plead too. Because you can't imagine, I mean, maybe you can, but the pressure that these folks are under right now, the massive amount of legal bills that they're facing, potentially time in prison that they're facing. And originally, with a lot of the co-conspirators, Trump was like footing the legal bills. But then there were just so many of them. And it was so I mean, it was a lot of money that he basically was like, all right, I'm not going to do this anymore. So these people are all out there exposed under tremendous pressure, trying to avoid jail time. Guess what a lot of them are going to end up doing? They're going to a lot of them are going to end up following the Sidney Powell path. And I need to remind everybody, this is just one of the cases. This is this is not the same as the Jack Smith case. Right. You know, and they're similar. It's like adjacent issues. But for my layman's eye, I understood the arguments in the Jack Smith case better. And I thought that that was stronger. But according to most legal experts, they actually say the opposite. They think that the RICO case is stronger. So what Fannie Willis is doing is stronger. So and the fact that there's already movement in her case leads me to believe like the same damn thing is going to happen. The biggest slam dunk of all of them, and I think you agree with this, is the classified documents and the obstruction of justice yeah. charges. Because that's like, it's over. We already know. <laughs> like, it's a guarantee. We got the people. We got the evidence. It's a wrap. You know, but the fact that now you have one of these, it looks like she's going to be talking. And this is in Georgia. I think in D.C. you might see similar things happening. He's in real trouble. These are also state charges, which he can't, even if he gets elected president, can't just, you know, pardon himself from. So even though the documents case, I think, is the most clear cut slam dunk, although, you know, you have a different jury pool down in Florida. Maybe you'll get some people who are very friendly to him or like basically cult members in favor of him. But that on a legal basis, it's just they have basically no defense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think. Trump has decided that he's going to lean into the political defense, and that's what he's really going to, you know, uh, going to count on because he has very few actual legitimate legal defenses against many of these charges. But, you know, in court of law, it doesn't matter what you're saying publicly. It doesn't matter how you are able to spin um, the politics of it. 
what we're seeing in that New York civil uh, fraud trial is that, you know, when it comes down to it, the facts actually matter. There are laws. There is a chance at being held accountable. And so, you know, as there's a, a lot of uh, concern, and this is something we can talk to Jenk about, too, like a lot of very understandable concern about Joe Biden and his prospects and his age, and he's not polling well, and he's losing to Trump in a bunch of swing states. I just saw a poll that came out. There's, you always point this out, Kyle, like there's next to no acknowledgement of this landscape that Trump is facing and not like in the distant future, but right now immediately in front of us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, I, one of the things that I found interesting is when Trump's in the courtroom and he's chosen to go to a bunch of these uh, court proceedings, he'll be there and he'll just kind of be sitting there scowling. Yeah. And there's even one instance the other day where he was loudly talking to his lawyer, like angrily going back and forth mm. with his lawyer to the point where the judge was like, pipe down. Wow. And he had to pipe down. Right. But then what happens is he sits there kind of meekly during the court proceedings. Then he goes out afterwards, standing outside the courtroom, all the media cameras on him. All of a sudden he turns it on and he starts doing his whole like, you know, witch hunt, unfair, terrible prosecutor, bad prosecutor. And he does his whole spiel. And the thing that's so fascinating about that dichotomy is he feels like all I have is the political counter argument because I'm losing the legal case right inside the courtroom. Exactly. All I have is outside. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, just lash out and try to swing at everything in sight. And I think that stems from, honestly, a sense of desperation and panic. And that you're, this is coming from the guy. You guys remember the longtime viewers. This is coming from the guy who was pumping everybody's brakes during the, some of the impeachment cases against mm -hmm. Trump during the Russiagate nonsense against Trump. Yeah. I was the one who was like, this doesn't look like there's much there there. And it ended with a whimper. This is not that. It's just not. Yeah. And that's why I say I feel like I mean, it's almost like people have forgotten about all of this unfolding. I know and it's um, 91 criminal charges. <laughs> like, you can't forget about that. Right. You can't forget it. And it's also, I mean, this is a former president. He's almost certainly going to be the Republican nominee. It's extraordinarily consequential. When we did our focus groups for breaking points with Republican voters, most of him whom really like Trump, even with them, when uh, they were asked, like, okay, but what if he is facing jail time? They're like, I just I can't do that. Because it's just a I practical question at that point. Right. It, it, one of them literally said, I remember the focus group, one of them literally said, I don't know how you can run the country from a jail cell. Right. And it's like, that's going to be what everybody thinks. You've, this has been reflected in polling numbers, too. His support drops tremendously when you say, well, what if he gets found guilty of a felony and he's in prison? Right. Well, and then, you know, the fact that you've got RFK Jr. running as an independent, I think also really comes into play because True. now you've got a, an outlet for people who are, you know, like hate Biden. Joe Biden. Right. But can't stomach the idea of Trump, especially if he's facing jail time. And so they've got a bailout option in place. He's got a significant war chest. RFK Jr. does. So he there is a decent opportunity that he'll be able to get on ballots, at least in a number of key swing states. So, you know, I was actually thinking about that. Um, we had a little debate on breaking points about RFK and with you and Emily and Sagar and like who he takes more from and what's going to happen, et cetera. And afterwards, I was actually thinking about the two focus groups we did, the Democratic one and the Republican one. And even though the Republicans who like Trump, like they like him way more than the Democrats, 
they all liked Biden, but they were kind of like, you know, they were like, ah, I'm worried and he's kind of old and he comes across as a little soft or a little frail or whatever. But Trump was such an animating force for them that there was actually more loyalty and uniformity towards Biden among the Democrats, not because they were in love with him. Because they hate Trump. But because they hate Trump. Yes. Then there was uniformity and loyalty among the Republicans. And so I, I do think that RFK Jr. in the scenario where Trump is, you know, in trials and facing jail time or, or being sentenced or whatever, the fact that he's there as a bailout option could end up being significant. Yeah, and hurt Trump and help Biden effectively. Yeah. All right. So now let's uh, let's talk a little bit about. I mean, you've been covering this nonstop over on Breaking Points. I've been covering it nonstop over on Secular Talk. We're doing yeah. super deep dives on Israel, Palestine, what's happening in Gaza right now, and pff, it is dark. It is ugly, and it is endless. You know, it just continues day after day after day. But one of the things that's been most disheartening to me is seeing how quickly people go fucking insane, like literally just lose their minds to the point where any like hint of morality in them is just gone. You know what I mean? I've yeah. seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of that. Yeah. And it's like these super frail arguments that, you know, they they use to cloak their disgusting <laughs> feelings on it. OK, Gen like genocidal flat out, flat out genocidal. And feelings and viewpoints. I yeah. don't say that lightly. You know, I'm I like, I seriously. OK, so here's the thing. Um, Sarah Silverman. Uh, on shared something on Instagram the other day, and this is getting a lot of rounds for understandable reasons. I'll read it for all of you guys. She says, PSA, there is a very strange thing happening. Many are saying that it's inhumane that Israel is cutting off water and electricity to Gaza. Israel made it pretty simple. Release the hostages and we will turn it back on. Instead of pleading with Hamas to release civilian hostages, which include babies and toddlers, there are politicians, cough, cough, AOC, calling Israel inhumane. If that isn't enough for you, Israel does not need to supply Gaza with these resources, which they do for free. <laughs> if Hamas didn't spend billions of dollars on terrorism, they would be able to build the infrastructure to support themselves. First of all, no, you dumb bitch. They're under a blockade. They have to build tunnels and people point out, oh, my God, they bring in, bring in weapons with the tunnels. You know what else they bring in with the tunnels? Food building materials yep. basic things you need to live because there's a blockade okay it's a permanent occupation so that's the first point second point is she's literally making the argument well maybe the civilians don't deserve water that's right maybe palestinians uh, civilians shouldn't have electricity that's right or food or fuel and it's like just release the hostages a palestinian grandma is not holding the hostages a palestinian baby is not holding the hostages so you're making an argument for collective punishment, ironically, as she's outraged over the collective punishment that was used against Israelis. Right. The difference between us and her is we were outraged at the collective punishment against Israelis with the Hamas terror attack going after civilians. And we're also outraged at the collective punishment against Palestinians. When you cut off food, fuel, water, when you indiscriminately bomb, and they do, I use that word on purpose, apartment buildings, uh, markets, mosques, etc. When you do that, you're using the same tactics that Hamas used in their terror attack, which means the Netanyahu government is, is they're acting like terrorists. And Sarah Silverman is cheering it on. Yep. Let me also say in this specific example with the, the hostages, which is abhorrent and Hamas absolutely should release innocent civilian hostages. 
what the Israeli government is effectively doing here is holding the entire civilian population of Gaza hostage by saying, we will deny you critical, essential elements of life until we get what we want, which is our own hostages released. So they're actually holding the entire 2.2 million person population, including over a million children, hostage in this situation. I also would say with regard to, I have to quibble too with this. She says, oh, they provide these resources Israel does for free. That's like literally not true. Gaza actually pays specifically for water and fuel and whatever it comes. You don't know what you're talking about. That's number one. Number two, with regard to the call out here of AOC, we don't fund Hamas as a United States government. We do fund Israel. They are using our weapons to bomb Gaza. So yes, do I think American politicians have a special responsibility to hold to account our supposed allies here who are overtly in the open admitting to and committing war crimes? Abso-fucking-lutely. But this whole attempt to equate all Palestinians with Hamas, to pretend that even the children are complicit, as the Israeli president argued, there are no innocent civilians, is so disgusting from someone who, you know, holds herself out as some, like, liberal or progressive. It's insane. And so if you aren't able to acknowledge both the humanity and innocence of Israelis and the humanity and innocence of Palestinians who did not massacre Israeli civilians, who are not Hamas, who are not affiliated with them, who in many cases may not approve of them, or who are babies and children. I just cannot imagine the curdled place that your heart has gone to really look at this population and just out of hand dismiss them. You don't deserve food. You don't deserve water. And at the end, this let them build the infrastructure themselves. It's like up by the bootstraps, whether under a literal blockade for, what, 16 years they've been under this? It's it's so distressing. This has been so distressing to me to see the mask off and how quickly people who hold themselves down as these like bleeding heart liberals turn to outright like genocidal ideology is really stunning. It absolutely is because, you know, you talk about it when you're in school, like, oh, my God, how did this ever happen? It's like it's happening right now, right in front of us casually. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's happening. And you got people cheering it on every step of the way. Yeah. Right. And to her point, she was like, well, why didn't you, why are you not pleading with Hamas to release the civilians? I did exactly that, right? And many people on the left did exactly that. Remember last week when we had Mac in here, we were covering yeah. everything in real time? Yeah, we were talking One about One of the it. points I made, I made a, a specific point to say, for the love of God, Hamas, release the hostages. These are innocent people. Yeah. These are innocent people. But my very next sentence was, and for the love of God, IDF, stop bombing innocent people. The difference is, she's willing to say the first part, Hey, Hamas, release the innocent civilians. She is not willing to say the second part. That's right. IDF, stop bombing innocent civilians. Stop doing collective punishment. Stop doing a medieval siege. And, like, that's just, it's so disturbing. Now, I know you have. So this one from um, Sarah Silverman was one of the more genocidal level. ones that I saw. Uh, but you also have just classic, like, I'm going to pretend like I'm a victim type stuff. That, also from Amy Schumer. Go ahead. Amy Schumer, who also has been, like, launching this these online campaigns to shame and call out anyone who expresses any sort of support for Palestine, too, by the way. So she's been really making a lot of use of her social media. But she posted this meme that says, 
First, they came for LGBTQ, and I stood up because love is love. Then they came for immigrants, and I stood up because families belong together. Then they came for the black community, and I stood up because black lives matter. Then they came for me, but I stood alone because I am a Jew. The, uh, the like, totally fake made-up victim complex. Like, first of all, bitch, you're a millionaire. You, you are, are a literally a millionaire. Celebrity who can do whatever you want whenever you want. Like right. no one is going to feel sorry for your ass. And oh, Israel's not getting enough support. Really? Biden basically went to Netanyahu and said, "Would you like to loot the U.S. Treasury? Be my guest." Yeah. Would you like another ten billion dollars in weapons? We don't have money for healthcare for our own citizens, but we will give you literally whatever you want to do with whatever you want. No end in sight. No preconditions, no limits whatsoever. And if you even suggest otherwise, um, you know, as a politician or as a citizen in the U.S., you are repugnant, repugnant and shameful. And don't get me started on TV media and oh. how relentlessly pro-Israel there are. There are some bright spots like Jake Tapper was somewhat even handed. And I think print media is doing a half decent job. But certainly in the West, overwhelmingly. The sympathy is for Israel. Oh, yeah. They're still talking about the initial Hamas terror attack where innocents were killed, even though since then, Israel has then used that to justify massacring even more innocent civilians on the Palestinian side. Yeah. Now the death toll is over 4,000 with over 1,000 children dead. And no one is they're drinking seawater in some places yep. since they ran out of water. Some of the uh, people in the hospitals are drinking IV fluid bags. This is where we're at. And this is what she's. Yeah, she's a victim sitting in fucking Beverly Hills or wherever she is. Israel has the most powerful government and military 100% lockstep on their side and always does. So you stand alone. Are you kidding me? Also, it disgusts me, this whole framing of like, well, I stood up for them. And so like it's some transactional relationship to have principles to stand up for gay people or black people or whatever. Like you're only doing it if they're going to do what you want in return is also a grotesque way to look at this. But if you look at the polling, I wish it was otherwise. But right now, the American public is overwhelmingly says like 90 percent that they're more sympathetic to the Israeli cause. Right. So yeah, even exactly. the fact that you have like 10 percent of people who are like, you know what? I kind of feel bad for the Palestinians, like collect punishment is bad and they're being massacred and there's a blockade and it's a legal occupation, whatever. Even that is too much. You can't have anyone even saying that. And I also, you know, it reminds me, too, of there's this whole freak out over the Harvard students and what they said in their letter and whatever. They have no power in terms of official government elected officials. Meanwhile, this view and like the outright genocidal one that Sarah Silverman is advocating, that is held by the highest echelons of power that is tacitly embraced um, in terms of the actions the United States is taking by Joe Biden himself, which has led to actually one of his uh, State Department officials resigning and discussed over Biden's Mideast policy. So who actually is standing alone here? Tell me that. Who actually has the real power in this whole situation? Her argument is, well, if you're not 100 percent on the side of Israel, full stop, you're an anti-Semite. That's her argument. Yeah. It's the classic. We saw this when people called for BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions to try to bring about Palestinian rights. They were like, no, you're an anti-Semite if you support that. So you're an anti-Semite if you fight back violently because violence is wrong. But then you're also an anti-Semite if you fight back peacefully through economic means. Right. So you're an anti-Semite either way. Right. And that, I mean, that, that's the argument that she's making. And by the way, 
again, the woe is me, like, oh my God, nobody supports us. Go read any statement from almost any U.S. politician. There's only 13 people in Congress with any semblance of intelligence or a backbone who are calling for a ceasefire in the midst of this absolute uh, savage, grotesque bomb campaign trying to wipe Gaza off the map. Only 13 of them have had the courage to come out and say ceasefire. And you know what people like Amy Schumer are calling them? The Hamas caucus. Yeah. So it, it, now a standard pro-Palestinian protests are being smeared as they support Hamas. The Even other when they're explicit in that they don't. That's it's right. a, nope, you support Hamas. So this is, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the other thing that this construction conflates is um, criticism of the Israeli government, criticism of the IDF, criticism of Netanyahu, criticism of the policies of the government as being and criticism of all Jews. And this is like a classic bait and switch where the minute you say anything about, and by the way, Israel is disgusted with Netanyahu right now. Like no one is more critical Israeli of him. Civilians, Israeli civilians. Israeli civilians are, no one is more critical of him than they are right now. But it's this easy conflation of like, oh, if you're criticizing Israel, if you're criticizing the response, then you're just, you just hate Jews. You're blaming the Jews. You're criticizing the Jews, which is so sloppy and disgusting and, you know, just inaccurate, wildly inaccurate. But it's very effective at effectively stifling debate. And by the way, let's be clear. This is how every genocide in history happens. It's for, from people who are screaming at the top of their lungs. We're the victim, we're the victim, we're the victim, we're the victim. We need to lash out and get them before they get us. That's what it is. And that's what this is, right? In yeah. the midst of a medieval siege where over 4,000 people have died, over 1,000 children have died, like I said, bombing every kind of civilian infrastructure you could think of and no bones about it whatsoever, right? They were trying to uh, argue over one specific hospital bombing, even though there's been literally 17 other hospital bombings. That's a real number, by the way, okay? I, I mean, this is just, this is insane. And this is the logic. The logic is we're the victim, I'm the victim, we're the victim, we're the victim, we're the victim. So we get to do anything in order to, to protect ourselves, protect ourselves. And think of how asymmetric it is. I mean, they were able to just blanket, first of all, cut off the water and electricity to 2 million people. They're able to blanket say, hey, you 1 million people living in and around Gaza City, you have to move. Forced relocation. Yeah, and people try like, to spin that. It's humanitarian. They're trying to get them into Egypt. Well, and oh, you mean they're doing another Nakba and kicking them out of their land? Not to mention, <laughs> they told them to go to southern Gaza, and then they kept bombing southern Gaza. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's been safe. And they bombed the Rafah crossing, too, into Egypt. They bombed 70 people who were doing what they said when they said go from north Gaza to south Gaza. So, I mean, so that just demonstrates for you the complete asymmetry. Hamas's horrific attack was like beyond their wildest dreams of what they've ever accomplished. I mean, there was even reporting that they were shocked they were able to achieve that much because the IDF was out protecting uh, settlers in the West Bank rather than being um, there in that particular region of, of southern Israel. But that's like the most they can possibly hope in terms of their own murderous massacring ends. Israel could stomp out this whole population in the blink of an eye if they chose. I mean, that's how that's just how disparate the level of power here is. And so to pretend like well, they're already doing it, the only thing they're not doing is nuking it. That's right. That's literally the only thing they're not doing is nuking Gaza. Yep. And that's probably because there'd be nuclear fallout that would impact them. So, yeah, is Israel uh, Sarah Silverman. Amy Schumer, they're the real victims in all of this. Won't anybody re remember? Again, I got to bring up one more point here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like I said, I think only 13 Congress people have been even half decent on this. Everybody else has been pathetic. 
the probably the brand that's most annoying. Republicans are just like, yay, genocide, right? Yeah. But Democrats are particularly annoying and grating because they like to do this thing where it's uh, Adam Johnson calls it lawyer speak. Mm. Where it's like, I'm deeply concerned about what I'm seeing in this. What does that mean? Right. What do you what does that mean? What are you calling right. for? What's the solution? Yeah. I'm deeply concerned. El Elizabeth Warren was getting dunked on because she's a blast at a hospital killed X number of people. Real well, the blast shouldn't have done that. <laughs> right? Like this is opposed so to here, blasts. Here's what John Fetterman talk about a letdown in this instance. John Fetterman said the following innocent Israelis were the victims of a terrorist attack that resulted in the largest loss of Jewish lives lives since the Holocaust. Now we know that the tragedy at the Gaza hospital was not caused by Israel. So he starts with something true, horrible Hamas terror attack. Any reasonable person agrees to that. Then he goes to, oh, yeah. And by the way, this uh, hospital that was bombed was bombed by uh, a, a misfired uh, Islamic, Islamic Jihad, Jihad, Palestinian rocket. It wasn't sent by Israel. Now, the 6,000 other missiles, which, again, that was a real number. Now it's probably like 8,000, somewhere around that area. Yeah. What about the other 8,000? You got anything to say about those other right. 8,000 and what they're targeting? And hospitals and schools and uh, marketplaces and homes and apartment buildings, et cetera. Let me continue with Fetterman. He yeah. says, I grieve for every innocent person. Do you? And brave Israeli soldier killed since Hamas started this war. If not for the horrific attacks by Hamas terrorists, thousands of innocent Israelis and Palestinians would still be alive today. Yeah, and the Palestinian side would be living under that permanent occupation. Forgot with, to mention that part. Yeah, with no human rights Forgot and no, uh, no voting rights, no justice whatsoever, with illegal settlers bulldozing their villages to the ground and stealing their land all willy-nilly. Anyway, he continues, now is not the time to talk about a ceasefire. Now is not the time to talk about a ceasefire. Over 4,000 dead on the Palestinian side and growing. Uh, we must support Israel in its efforts to eliminate the Hamas terrorists who slaughtered innocent men, women, and children. Um, what about the children who are being slaughtered right now by the IDF? Do they count? Apparently not. Apparently not. Hamas does not want peace, does the IDF. They want to destroy Israel. We can talk about a ceasefire after Hamas is neutralized. So after we magically get rid of all of Hamas, then we could talk about a ceasefire. Well, why would you need a ceasefire after Hamas? Somebody made this point. Why would you need a ceasefire after Hamas is gone? That sort of implies you were going after Palestinian civilians. Yeah. There's, there's another population that you're fighting against, right? Right. You're never going to get rid of all of Hamas. The same way, it was, this is George W. Bush's, we're on terror, we're going to fight terror. Terrorism is a tactic. Never going to beat that. Hamas are hardliners in the Palestinian territories who are like, we're not going to compromise. We want, our, we want a Palestinian state and we're going to fight you to, reach, uh, to achieve that because negotiations don't work. So there's always going to be Hamas. There's always going to be hardliners who are like, no, we, we're going to fight in order to achieve a Palestinian state. So this is this is a, a Sisyphean task. That's not the that's not the, the phrase I'm looking for. But like this is it's never going to happen. So this is just the an excuse to keep bombing indefinitely. Well, and we know that because if your actual goal was counterinsurgency to go in and take out Hamas, this is not what you would do. And, you know, uh, Sagar actually found this Jocko Willink, who is a veteran of the Iraq war and who is no liberal lefty squish. He was like, they need to stop bombing Gaza. Like, if you actually are serious about taking out Hamas, you go in. It's more special forces operations. You are going to lose a lot of people on the other. You need to be surging humanitarian aid 
to the civilian population to win over their trust. Like if you are actually serious about that goal, those are the sort of tactics that you would employ, keeping in mind that when we did try that in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was also a dramatic failure. But those are the sort of tactics you would employ. This operation is about nothing other than vengeance. I mean, it's just reaction, retaliation, and vengeance with no care about the civilian population whatsoever. And you know that because they openly admit, the Israeli government openly admits, they have no plan for the what happens next. They have not figured it out. They just went in with the bombs, which for them is the easy part. And then they'll figure out what comes next later. And we have a roadmap for that. I mean, this is the most brutal um, attack on Gaza, but it's not like it's the first. And how did that work out? How did it work out for Gaza civilians? How did it work out for Israeli security? How did it work out in terms of being able to achieve any sort of long-term, sustainable, just peace? It's a disaster. And so is this. Piers, Absolute disaster. Piers Morgan has been asking people, well, and he thinks this is a gotcha for mm. pro-Palestinian people. Yeah. Well, what should Israel do? There was just a giant terror attack where over a thousand innocent civilians were slaughtered. What should they do? And he thinks it's such like a, aha, you're in a corner. Obviously, you should indiscriminately bomb civilians. That like he acts like that's the answer. Yeah. No, I said it on day one. The answer is intelligence work and special forces. I wouldn't deny, nobody should deny that the individuals who actually carry out terror attacks against innocent civilians need to pay a price. Yeah. Like nobody would deny that. But that requires, it's not, it doesn't satiate that urge for retribution and that's, revenge. That's all that and this so, is intelligence work, special forces, and then also, let's keep it real, get to the root of the problem as to why this happened that's in the first the, place, the which is part. the illegal occupation. The root of the problem. Stop with the, I, we talked about this the other day. Did you know George H.W. Bush was able to get Israel to freeze settlements by saying, I'm, I'll condition money you, I'll give you a $10 billion loan guarantee. A U.S. president has the ability to be like, you know what you're gonna do? You're going to stop using bulldozers and raising to the ground Palestinian villages in the West Bank and taking the territory. That's what you're going to do. Yeah. And if you don't, here are the consequences. It's carrots and sticks, right? You can stop them from doing that in the West Bank, and you can force a diplomatic solution in Gaza. Yeah. I mean, th this is obvious, right? But until they do that, you're going to keep having—Hamas is going to grow. You're going to have more— terrorists and hardliners. Yep. And by the way, it works the same in the other direction, too, with Hamas going after innocent civilians in uh, in Israel. Yeah. You are going to have more people flock to the fucking psychos. You know, right wing extremism breeds equal and opposite right wing extremism. That's right. That's what happens. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's how you end up with the Netanyahu government to start with, um, which is the most extreme in history and has people members of it in particular. Um, uh, ben Gavir, who is like overtly genocide. He doesn't even try to hide it. I mean, it's just out there for everyone to see. But, you know, the last thing I'll say specifically about Fetterman's comments is um, he is making effectively the polar opposite case of the Harvard student said, you know, the attack on Israeli citizens. It was Harvard. Uh, it was um the Israeli government's sole responsibility. Like they completely it was, said like- It's their fault completely. It was their fault right. completely. Like Hamas terrorists had no agency. No agency, et cetera, Which I yeah. think is absurd. That's wrong. But yeah. this that's effectively the construction that he is doing on the other side. of right. like, well, it's not Israel's government's fault. It's just, it's Hamas. Like all of the Palestinian civilians who are being murdered now, it's not even a little bit the fault of the people who are dropping thousands of bombs on mosques and schools and relief agencies, et cetera. And that is completely insane it's, as well. It's the, it's, 
politics is infuriating because it's the sectarianism, it's the tribalism, it's the my side versus your side, and I'm going to stick on a team. And it's like individual actions, individual policies are moral, immoral, correct, incorrect, et cetera. You have to evaluate each thing on its own merits, right? right? And one of those things which should be the biggest layup in the world is any sort of violence targeted at innocent civilians is bad and wrong, no matter who the fuck does it. Yeah. It's bad when the U.S. does it. It's bad when Russia does it. It's bad when Iran does it. It's bad when Israel does it. It's bad when Hamas does it. It's a, like, this is obvious, right? But unfortunately, and this is to come full circle and we'll end on this, this is the thing that's been driving me crazy watching all this unfold. Yeah. Is that like, you know, you wake up, horrible stuff happens, you scroll through Twitter and you're like, you're a psycho and you're a psycho and you're a psycho and you're a psycho. And apparently I'm surrounded by fucking psychos everywhere. Never mind just... the fact the biggest psychos of all are running our government. Biden made that comment about the hospital uh, strike. He was like, well, it looks like the other team did it, which I think I mean, unfortunately, that's how so many people are looking at this conflict, like they're fucking sports teams and like, oh, right. well, I'm going to cheer for the Detroit Lions no matter what they do, you know, because that's those are that's my team and those are my guys. You can, you know, you can be more inclined towards the Israeli point of view and still be really critical, as many Israeli citizens are, by the way, of their government, of their actions, and especially of the slaughter of innocent civilians. And you can also be, you know, more really supportive but of Palestinian of, yeah, of statehood and be really critical of the, you know, disgusting, horrific tactics that were used by Hamas. Terrorism. You can separate these things. And... It seems like that is like the most controversial thing you could possibly say in all of this. Yeah. Pathetic. Anyway. All right. Now on that uh, somber, sad note, let's jump into something that's more interesting and fun and hopeful. Here is Jenk Uger. Welcome, Jenk Uger. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's of course. Our, our pleasure. So I want to get your reaction to some news that just came out not too long ago in real time. I don't know if you've talked about this publicly yet. But uh, it looks like Sidney Powell, who, of course, was, you know, leading one of the leading people in the one Trump the campaign. Yes. Who was arguing like actually the election was stolen and Hugo Chavez was the one who stole it for Biden. She had like the dumbest of all the theories. She is now pleading guilty in the election crimes case in Georgia. And it she's agreeing six misdemeanors, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And she has to pay a fine. And she actually has to uh, do parole as well. Which probation, I found but avoiding jail time. Oh, probation, right, yeah. probation. Um, and it says that she is going to, as you know, part of this deal, she has to talk. She has to basically flip. So, number one, what are your thoughts on that? Number two, do you think it's going to be Trump specifically that she uh, flips on? And how do you think this is going to impact the big guy? Yeah. All right. So first of all, uh, Sidney Powell flipping sounds like a giant surprise, but it actually isn't, guys, uh, because uh, already the Trump team made a decision that they were going to throw Sidney Powell under the bus. So almost every Trump person was saying, it wasn't us. It was, uh, it was Sidney Powell. Yeah, we don't know anything about her. And part of the reason that they are throwing her under the bus is because she was a rare person uh, that they actually let go of in the middle of that mess. So she made an easy scapegoat, plus she's a lunatic. But now here's the critical part. So did Sidney Powell do all those things? Is she guilty? Of course, it's not even close, right? And now she's basically admitting that she did those things. So now the question is, I hope to God that the prosecutors got a real deal here. Because if she says like, 
oh, yeah, we all knew that the election wasn't stolen, but we kind of wanted to pretend anyway. That's not good enough. No, did you know about the fake elector scheme? Who knew about the fake elector scheme? To what degree was the fake elector scheme meant to steal the election and do a coup against America? If she's got the goods on that, then it's the most important story by a landslide. If she doesn't talk about the fake electors, then it's not good enough. Um, Jake, let me ask you a little bit more about this, because this also does tie into your rationale for your presidential run, which, by the way, I want to say congratulations on. It's, you know, these things are difficult. It's very easy to, you know, take shots at someone who's out there in square trying to do a thing. And so, you know, I admire your courage in putting yourself out there. I just want to say that. But, you know, part of your rationalization is like Biden is going to lose. But Trump's got a lot of stuff going on here, too. So how do you look at the legal landscape that is facing him? Um, do you think that he's in big trouble from a legal perspective? And how does that tie into his political chances? Yeah. So let's break that out. So first of all, thank you uh, for the kind words. I appreciate it. And yes, uh, a lot of people are like, oh, you can't win. Oh, really? Oh, you genius has just figured out that it might be a long shot. Okay, yes, I'm perfectly <laughs> aware that it's a long shot. Um, uh, second of all, uh, the reason I'm running is uh, because of uh, another giant piece of news that came out today that further supports exactly what I've been saying all along, which is morning consult poll saying that Biden is now losing five out of seven swing states and tied in a sixth uh, and barely hanging on in Nevada. He's losing Pennsylvania. We cannot lose Pennsylvania. We can't come close to losing Pennsylvania. He's down by 10 points to independence. What I'm, partly what I'm trying to do, guys, is snap the country out of the trance that it's in, that as if a guy who's down 24 points on the economy can win. It's never happened. And, you, and people think Biden is the one miracle charismatic candidate that is so overwhelmingly liked by the American people and so good at politics that he's going to overcome a 24-point deficit on the economy, 10-point deficit with independence. So I'm sorry. I, I desperately, desperately don't want Trump to win, but Biden's going to lose. In fact, I literally bought the website, bidensgonnalose.com, okay? <laughs> so, and, and so I'm going to say it. I don't care how much it hurts people's feelings. There's a freaking iceberg straight ahead. Turn the ship. Turn the ship, okay? So we'll get to who, me, all that in a second. But to your point, Crystal, here's a second thing that I got to snap people out of the trance of, because apparently they, like, I get it. Laymen don't know how the legal system works. Tr First of all, if Trump wins, all the federal cases disappear instantly. In one second flat, they're gone. Jack Smith's cases, et cetera, wiped away. I don't want anyone having even 1% doubt about that. Gee, I wonder if he'll pardon himself and fire everyone at the Justice Department who was trying to prosecute him. He'll even put them in jail. Don't Please don't be ridiculous, okay? So secondly, well, how about the state cases? Ladies and gentlemen, we got them, right? No, we don't. He's going to appeal them. So what if he's convicted? MAGA and independents have already, he's already charged with 91 crimes. Does it look like it hurt his numbers? He's crushing Biden. It hasn't hurt his numbers at all, and it's not going to hurt his numbers. And he's not going to go to jail. He's going to appeal. And then what's going to happen? In a good case scenario where he loses in Atlanta or loses in New York, and then he's convicted in a state court, but he's the sitting president of the United States. And by the time the appeals are done, it'll be like 2025, 2026. What are they going to do? Go arrest the president? 
No, they're not. And it's going to be totally irrelevant and totally useless if he wins the presidency, which he is completely on track to do right now. Jenkforamerica.com, Biden's going to lose.com. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea. I'm sympathetic to the argument of like, look, as you like to call him, Biden's a wounded antelope, right? Like he's, he's not doing well. I honestly think just the um, just the face value reasons like, you know, he's really old and he kind of stumbles and bumbles his way through sentences. And so just like optic stuff alone, I'm sympathetic to the argument. But I do want to provide the counter argument and get your response. So I looked at the real clear politics average of the polls last night, and they actually have Biden and Trump dead tied at 44.3 percent nationally. Uh, and according to 538, Biden is underwater with his approval rating, 14 points, and Trump is underwater, 15 points. So I think it's fair to say dead tied on that front. You already brought up the 91 criminal charges mm -hmm. against Trump. I, obviously, you Irrelevant. don't think that's... Okay, you don't think it's going to impact him that much. I, I disagree on that. But, like, even this notion, there's no way he can win. I mean, I remember very vividly during the midterms, everybody around me was telling me red wave, red wave, red wave. And I was like, I don't know about that. I'm kind of agnostic. And it turned out I was right. It wasn't a red wave. It was a red trickle. And then you also have these recent special elections. There were 38 special elections recently, and Dems are outperforming the polls by an average of 10 points. So the fact that you have all that stuff, plus I think Roe versus Wade really changed the political dynamic in the country. Uh, and then you also have the Republicans are in disarray. And, you know, these are the election denialism is also, I think, hurting them massively. It does appear to be a bridge too far for many independents and many moderate voters when you have one of the two major parties totally denying the 2020 election. All of Trump's hand-picked political candidates like Carrie Lake and Doug Mastriano and Blake Masters, these are all people who shit the bed and got blown out the worst. It was actually the more standard old-school Republicans like Kemp who did a better job in, in the last election. And so I think that Trump has a stench on him to normie America, where even though the points you make are valid about how weak Biden is, I look at Trump as equally as weak, if not potentially more weak, because the 91 criminal charges. Yeah, so uh, Kyle, let me address all those. I, I get them, I understand that they're interesting and fair points. So let me knock them down one by one from my perspective. So number one, is Trump a popular candidate overall in the country? No, 55% of this country pretty much despises him. So how did Hillary Clinton lose to him? How did Joe Biden only beat him in the Electoral College by 44,000 votes? Like people forget how razor thin the margin was in the Electoral College, right? And, and so why is it that the Democrats are doing terrible against a super unpopular candidate? That's because they keep offering the American people something that they definitively do not want, and they have now vomited out several times. And the Democrats say, I don't care. I'm going to try to shove it right back in your mouth. They don't want the establishment. They despise the establishment. Every poll says we hate politicians. We hate the media. We hate everyone in D.C. So, and the Democrats go, oh, so you'd like, like the most establishment politician of our lifetime, Hillary Clinton. Oh, you don't want her? How about we pick someone almost as establishment as her, Joe Biden? And they're like, bro... How, how clear do we have to be? So here's the most important analogy. 
So I don't know if you guys are football fans, but these days the Raiders aren't playing well. So if you say Trump's like the Raiders, come on, anybody can beat the Raiders. So let's just put up anyone we want in the Super Bowl and we'll win. I'd say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Why would you put up the Bears? The Bears are the only ones that could lose to the Raiders. Why don't we put the Chiefs up against the Raiders? Granted, that would not be a Super Bowl. I get that. <laughs> They're both in the AFC. But you get play the Chiefs. Run the Chiefs. Don't run the Bears. Why are you picking the worst candidate when you can pick a perfectly great candidate? So now, let's put me aside for a second. We can come back to me because give me the mic and I will run all of these guys out of town. There's, they, like put, put me in a debate, I'd win in a landslide. It wouldn't even be close. So, okay, but you could say Jenks crazy, I don't believe that. Fine, no problem. Josh Shapiro, governor of Pennsylvania, crushed a Trump acolyte by about 20 points. He's very popular, he's strong, he's establishment enough not to freak out the establishment, and he's slightly progressive in a way that could actually appeal to the average man. He would, would he win Pennsylvania? Easily. We take Pennsylvania off the board. That's already ours. And then he would do five to 10 points better than Biden almost everywhere. Why are we purposely picking a candidate who's nearly the worst candidate that we have? 75% of Americans say they don't think Biden can even finish a second term. Literally three quarters of the country thinks he's going to die in office if he wins again. Are we lunatics to pick that guy? To give you a context of the real clear politics polls, Kyle. So he was, but recently Biden was down by a point. He's inched back to a tie, to your point, right? But remember, the Democratic candidate, no matter who it is, has to win the popular vote by five points. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million and got crushed in the Electoral College. Joe Biden won the popular vote by 7 million, four and a half points, and barely eked out a victory. We need five points to be relatively safe that a fascist is not going to take over the country. And Joe Biden is not going to beat Trump by five. He's never been close to being above Trump by five. The only time that he was close to being uh, beating Trump by five was on election day of 2020. And all he's done is slide dramatically down since then. He was at 54 at the time, and he eked out a victory. Now he's at 39. So 15 points lower than when he almost lost. And people in their right mind think that that's the right candidate to run? No way. JoeBiden'sGonnaLose.com. JoeBiden'sGonnaLose.com. It's obvious. It's super obvious to anyone who's looking at it objectively. So uh, enjoy your bombast. Yeah. Let me. Okay. So just a, a couple points to yeah. respond to that. There was a poll that just came out with had Biden up seven. So I and that's not the average to be fair. But my point is, Nonsense. I absolutely, I absolutely think it's possible that he hits that benchmark. I'm not as convinced as you that there's no way he can win. To your point about all the other Democrats. Part of me believes what you're saying, but the other part of me is like, I don't know, man, name recognition is like really, really, really important. And Biden's got the highest name recognition in the world. And nobody knows who Josh Shapiro is other than Pennsylvanians. But look, let's go let's go candidate for candidate to get into the specifics here, because I have a little bit more of a nuanced view on, you know, if a candidate is more electable than Biden. So if you tell me Kamala is more electable than Biden, I disagree. If you tell me Pete Buttigieg is more electable than Biden, I disagree. I agree with you that almost everybody after that is probably more electable than him, although the name recognition thing complicates it a little bit. But like Newsom, J.B. Pritzker, Warnock, 
uh, you know, potentially Whitmer. Like, I feel like all them are probably more electable than Biden. Do you do you believe that, like, no, literally all of those candidates are less electable than Biden? Okay, so uh, first of all, let's note that I'm the only presidential candidate in history that keeps arguing for other candidates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's because, look, guys, I'm in this because Donald Trump said that immigrants are poisoning the blood of our nation. That specific quote is only used so far in, in world history by Adolf Hitler and Donald Trump. That's him saying, look, don't say I didn't warn you. I used literal Nazi quotes. And I had dinners with Nazis. And I said that there were not good people on Nazi side. So we have to be Trump. We have to be Trump. And going in with a wounded antelope is insanity. So, okay. So then people go, you're, you're right, Kyle. They go, Kamala Harris then. She's next in the line of succession. What, did we vote on being a monarchy and I missed it? No, line of succession is when you're president. If something, God forbid, happens to the president, then you're in the line of succession. But there's no line of succession in uh, primaries and in elections. No, Kamala Harris will enter the primary and she'll get annihilated because she's a terrible candidate. So uh, I agree with you, Pete Buttigieg is so establishment so elitist, so unlikable by the average man that he, I, I would put him in the Biden category as well. But as you just acknowledged, every governor would be do better than uh, Biden. Here, I'll give you another governor. Andy Bashir, A, literally the most popular governor in the country. B, he's a Democratic governor in Kentucky. Does anyone want to make the argument that Governor Bashir wouldn't be a better candidate than Joe Biden? Well, I mean, if you make that argument, you're just admitting you're so biased you can't see straight. Of course, the guy who's the most popular governor is going to do way better than the guy who's an incredibly unpopular president. And I know it breaks a lot of people's heart to hear that, but 39%, my whole life, if an incumbent was under 50%, every analyst agreed he was in massive trouble and very likely to lose. Now, we have an incumbent under 40%. Never happened. An incumbent winning when they're under 40% literally has never happened. But we think we don't need the chiefs. We don't need the most popular governor. We don't need guys who would be up five, 10 points on Trump. Let's go with the wounded antelope. No, hell no. Even if, even if you're not gonna pick me, which let's go, let's have a real race. And then I'm happy to run against Bashir Shapiro Newsom and make my case, jankforamerica.com. But for now, guys, if I don't go up in the polls, and I don't put enough pressure on Biden, the Democrats in Washington are going to sleepwalk us right into that iceberg. And then when we're in the freezing water going, oh my God, what happened? How did we lose democracy? How do we live under a fascist state? I'm gonna tell you guys, what did I tell you? Why did you run the weakest candidate in history against the fascist? What kind of insanity is that? Pick any random Democratic governor and they'll do way better than Biden. So um, I don't think either one of us is arguing that Biden is a particularly strong candidate. I just I'm not as convinced that he's for sure going to lose. And I also see clearly that we could do worse. And I just pulled up. This is the uh, Democratic primary nomination without Biden, you know, where they float a bunch of names and see who um, who comes out on top. Kamala Harris, 
29% is number one. Number two is Hillary Clinton. And number three is Pete Buttigieg. I think all three of those are way worse than Biden in every respect, both from a policy perspective, but also from an electability perspective. So it is not clear to me at all that if you actually did open it up to the wide world of Democratic whoever, that you would end up with someone who was better in any respect than Joe Biden. So, Crystal, uh, first of all, what a weird poll where they polled like the three most only the three most toxic Democrats. Oh, no, in the no, country. no, 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 no. There's more there's people w- on way the more. list. I'm next looking at it Newsom, now. Next comes Newsom. Next comes AOC. Then Warren, Stacey okay, Abrams, so Jamie Pritzker, gets... Amy Klobuchar. Yeah. A bunch of people were polled. Those just were the top three. Those were who the Democratic base yeah. voters were like, yes, yeah. Kamala Harris. Yeah. So, guys, so this gets to a giant misnomer. Name recognition is massively important in primaries. It is not at all important in a presidential race. Do you think that there's any chance that the people, by the time the election is rolling around, are going to be like, oh, I don't know who the Democratic candidate is. I guess I'll just vote against them. No, they're all going to know who the Democratic candidate for president is. That's not even close. Did they know who uh, Michael Dukakis was when he started running for president? No, nobody knew. By the time the election rolled around, everyone knew who Michael Dukakis was, and they knew what their choices were. Now, that didn't turn out well, because again, we picked a super weak candidate. Democrats love to pick weak candidates. The perfect candidate would have been Fetterman pre-stroke. Give me somebody strong, somebody populist, somebody progressive, somebody that's actually fighting for the average man, and we'll crush the Republicans. Fetterman crushed the Republicans post-stroke. At the time, he couldn't even speak. He went to a debate and couldn't speak, and he still beat the Republicans in Pennsylvania, where Joe Biden is losing today. So if you say, hey, Cenk, your name recognition isn't high enough to win a primary, I say, look, that's a fair argument against me in particular. But if you say, oh, not enough people know Andy Bashir, and by the time that he is the Democratic candidate and his, uh, an election rolls around, they're going to be like, oh, who is that? I don't know who he is. I guess I'll vote for Trump. Zero percent chance of that. Yeah. Let me I, let me throw let me throw one more factor at you, which is that very likely on the ballot in a lot of states is not just going to be Biden and Trump. It's also going to be RFK Jr., who's amassed quite a war chest and is now running as an independent. And um, you know, the polls so far, there's one that just came out that found he takes quite a lot more from Trump because of his right wing views than from Biden. And that poll had Biden winning by seven percentage points when you include all three on the ballot. It's just another complicating factor, which is like makes me less makes it much less clear to me than it seems to be to you that Biden is a for sure loser. Okay, can I just say two things about that? Number one, yeah, yeah, that poll, I don't know what that I don't know if that poll was done by Biden's best friend.com, but uh why did they leave out Cornell West? Cornell West takes three points away from Biden. So when you put in RFK Jr. and Cornell West, Biden goes back to losing. So, uh, and then second of all, guys, we're having the wrong debate. We're, uh, if you're saying, Jenk, there's only a 95% chance Biden's going to lose instead of a 100% chance, so I disagree with you. Okay, fine. No, nothing wrong with that disagreement. That's not the question. The question is, who would be our best candidate? Not can the wounded antelope stumble, crawl, and roll over to the finish line by a hair and beat Trump like he did last time after he closes 15 points in approval ratings. Why? Why are we putting our, okay, here, I'll grant you not necessarily the worst candidate we have, but 
one of the worst candidates we have. <laughs> Why pick the Bears, the Cardinals, the Packers? Pick the Chiefs. Pick the Bills. Colvin in the, the control Niners. room is going to be very pick happy about your candidates. about your Chiefs love. By the way, <laughs> um, so I, I, would you would you if I told you it was going to be Kamala versus Trump or Pete versus Trump? Do you think they're more electable and therefore in order to defeat Trump, which is a priority, which I agree with you about, um, is that the way we should go? Like, would you rather is there more comfort in that scenario than there is if it's Biden versus Trump? No, no there's no. not. So there are they equal in that scenario? Like, you think they're equally likely I, to lose? I, I think Kamala Harris might be the only candidate in America that is worse than Joe Biden. And. <laughs> And so, and then, by the way, Kyle, you're super right to point that out. And, and the reason is because Washington is frozen in fear over two things. Well, if we get rid of Biden, then it has to be Kamala Harris. Why? Because Democrats have been taught obedience, obedience to the powerful. So if she's in the line of succession and she's the crown princess, we must go with her. No, snap out of it. Snap out of it. It's a democracy. We don't have to go with the crown princess, okay? But everyone in Washington is convinced, if it's not Biden, well, I guess we have to give it to Kamala. The second thing here, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, is that people in Washington believe in identity politics, especially the Democrats, believe in identity politics so strongly that they think we don't even care what the voters think. But within our elitist circles, we have to do a quota system. And if we take out, if we don't just hand it to the African-American woman, then we shall will be shamed and it'll be terrible. And we can't, we just can't not give it to the African-American woman. When in reality, the voters are like, who cares? Like, it's great if it's an African-American woman and she's strong and she kicks ass for us and she delivers for us. That's perfect and that's beautiful. But if she's an African-American woman that's just a rando, that's a super weak candidate and a corporatist and an establishment type that most people don't like, no, it doesn't have to be that. We're, look, guys, I'll go to one last football analogy. Steelers are my favorite <laughs> team. I love the Steelers. I love the Steelers, okay? So if you love Biden or you you love the idea that it only, oh, African-American woman, and that'll save everything, you love that idea. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to risk all of our lives to have the Steelers play the Raiders. No, I'm going to pick the, here, you don't like the Chiefs? I'm going to pick the Niners. I'm going to pick a team that's freaking awesome. So I'm not going to listen to any crap about identity politics or quotas or line of succession or Pete Buttigieg and how much he fake speaks Norwegian and pleases corporate donors for a living. No, we run a real race and strong primaries result in strong candidates. The de And the Republicans in 2016 had the, the messiest, ugliest primary in the world and they won in yeah. 2020 we had 27 candidates in the democratic primary and according to total bullshit washington logic they're like well that's uh, the party is split we are now divided 27 places we will definitely lose oh primaries are terrible don't do primaries and what happened we won yeah I think I, mean, I think that's a good point. Uh, I was well, a couple of things. So first of all, on the Kamala Harris, I just want to chime in with we just did a focus group of Democratic voters outside of uh, Atlanta. And the person who was most favorable to Kamala Harris was actually like the liberal white guy. 
And Absolutely. then the, the <laughs> most critical person in the room was this older black woman named Mary, who, when we were, we were asking, like, you know, do you think that she has a chance to beat Trump? And she goes, not in a million years. <laughs> so just to lay to rest some of the, you know, identity politics part of, of Kamala but Harris. But I still is the fear that they might go with Kamala. Well, like, I mean, the, the, po- the voting base, I mean, like, it's possible. That's what I fear. Like, my fear is I genuinely think Kamala and Pete are worse than Biden, Agreed. not only on electability, but also on policy. So my fear is if they go with one of those, which to your point about the line of succession, Jenk, yeah, back in the day, it used to be the case the Democrats were willing to be uh, take uh, some more risks like Obama came out of nowhere and won. Right. But like yeah. as we've gotten older now, the Democrats act like the Republicans. Well, where the Republicans because... be, Oh, it's your turn, John McCain. You go ahead and win. Now it's like it was Joe Biden's turn and they gave it to Joe Biden. It's you because know what Trump is so existential. You know, and so when you have a Democratic base that right. still has safe. a lot of trust in the mainstream press, as much as all of us are working to change that, that still is the reality. It became all too easy for them to just be like, Joe Biden's the guy. If you want to beat Trump, forget about Medicare for all. That's all you could do. But I mean, I, I tend to in terms of the primary, I do have that fear that we could end up if you just really open it up, that we could end up with a Kamala Harris or a Pete and it would be worse. But I do believe it. I do believe in democracy and I do believe that those processes tend to yield a strong candidate, that it's not a bad thing, that it doesn't, you know, create additional, you know, it it isn't this like fr- such a fraught exercise that you have to just anoint someone. So I do, you know, I, I hear your points on, on that piece. I wanted to ask you about um, another piece of your analysis, which your theory is that if you get in and you're able to get like 20 percent of the vote, it's going to show this weakness of Biden. And then you will have the Andy Bashir, Josh Shapiro, Gavin Newsom, whoever will s- see blood in the water and will jump into the race. But I mean, you did have RFK Jr. at one point averaging 20 points in the poll at a time when Marianne was around 10 points. I'm looking at the averages right now on RCP and it didn't change anything. So it's hard for me to see why it would be different if you were able to achieve that. And that's also a very big if. Yeah. So, Crystal, first of all, uh, he that goes to the incredible weakness of Joe Biden, that rando RFK Jr., who's not even a Democrat, got to 20 points. And we all were like, oh, yeah, OK, that, that's probably not a harbinger of terrible things to come. Right. But it was much earlier in the process. So people didn't panic. So uh, now, look, there's there's a couple of scenarios here. Mm-hmm. The less likely scenario is the one that I mentioned and the one that you're, you know, uh, pushing back against now, which is I get to 20, 25 points, and then all the governors who thought for sure they were going to lose and get embarrassed, et cetera, go, whoa, it turns out this guy who's a nationalized citizen, a firebrand, no name recognition, not doesn't have Kennedy in his last name, got to 20, 25 points. Jesus, imagine if Pritzker was in the race, Newsom was in the race, we'd probably be at 55. Yeah, knuckleheads, you would. It's like, try to gather up a tiny bit of courage. I know you're all professional politicians and you're all scared to death of your precious ego being wounded, but get in the goddamn race. Okay, so we stop talking about Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, and and the dentist down the street, okay? So uh, that's point one. Point two is the more likely scenario, Crystal, is if I mm. get to 2025 and I'm putting some serious damage on Biden, I mean, and if I reduce his chances from 10% to 9%, um, what's going to happen is 
people that in Washington already are worried. They see the same morning consult poll I saw, I talked about in the beginning of the mm -hmm. show. They see every poll showing that they're going to lose. And a lot of them are professionals and they can read numbers. So they're all sitting on the deck of the Titanic going, do we grab the wheel or don't we grab the wheel? It feels like we've been told to obey our whole lives, so we shouldn't grab the wheel. But we really got to grab the wheel. We're all going to die, right? So as they're deciding that, I'm pushing them towards the wheel. Go grab the wheel. Go grab the wheel. You don't understand. It's dire, right? So the realistic scenario, Crystal, is that those guys get Biden to drop out. Because think about these two scenarios. So Biden drops out now. He retires a hero, and no one disputes that. He beat Trump the first time, skin of his teeth on the electoral college. Who cares? Who cares? A win's a win, okay? So he beat Trump last time, pretty good steward of the economy. Unemployment is at a record low, and magnanimously retires so that a younger, stronger, healthier, more popular candidate can win. America loves Joe Biden. Joe Biden goes into this race knowing that he's 80 years old. 75% of Americans don't think he's even going to survive a second term. He's down 15 points from where he barely won uh, beat Trump. He prevents all other good candidates from coming in, and then he loses to Trump. Then he's the villain of the story. And he lost democracy on his watch. History will judge him as one of the worst people in American political history. He's the one that let the fascist walk in the door because he was too selfish and too egotistical and said, well, I want a second term. I want to be even grander. Man, history is going to eviscerate Joe Biden. And, by, and so when those advisors that want Biden to drop out tell Joe Biden this scenario, it's going to scare the living crap out of him because there's only one thing Joe Biden cares about, Joe Biden and his stupid legacy and his stupid ego. So when he thinks, oh, my God, my legacy might be tarnished, that's when he panics, that's when he drops out, and that's when we have a real race. Get me to 20 and start the panic. Let's go, let's go, let's go. We got to start right now. So we'll we'll get to other stuff. We'll we'll jump off Biden in a, in a second here. But what's wild is that we're having this conversation. It might all be null and void because it's somewhat possible that he passes away before the election, or Trump has a massive heart attack because he's bloated, gelatinous, seventy some odd year old man, almost but, eighty. But Kyle, can I jump in on that one real quick? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's another reason why we have to go right now because if we wait till the convention, then it is line of succession. Then Kamala will be our candidate. So yeah. your two nightmare scenarios are still alive right now, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. The only way to prevent those nightmare scenarios is to pick another candidate right now. Jankforamerica.com. Yeah, I, 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 my fear is that it's a line of succession either way, but I hope I'm wrong. But let me, so final two points and I'll get your reaction to this. First one is, how do you respond to the argument that incumbent presidents don't typically lose primaries? And then the other one is, all of us said during the Democratic primary in 2020, Biden can't be Trump, and we were wrong. So does that give you any pause? Yeah, no, it doesn't. So a couple of things. So number one, uh, yeah, incumbent uh, presidents have a giant name recognition advantage in a primary. So you remember how we talked about earlier, name recognition matters in a primary, but not in a general election. Now, in a general election, 
that advantage of incumbency turns into not just a little disadvantage, but a significant disadvantage. Why? Because then they get to hang everything that goes wrong around your neck. So they say, oh, gas prices went up for like by 35 cents right before the election. Joe Biden's fault. Everybody vote for uh, Trump. Oh, this went wrong with the economy. That went wrong with foreign policy, which happens nonstop. It's the incumbent's fault, the incumbent's fault, the incumbent's fault. Do you know uh, what uh, what is the uh, fault of Josh Shapiro or Andy Beshear? Nothing. But the, the, what did the governor of Pennsylvania or the governor of Kentucky have anything to do with gas prices? Nothing at all. They get to have a clean slate, whereas Biden is weighed down by all of the things that go wrong in his term. And then so, uh, to that, which then ironically leads to the second point, which is, well, we thought that Biden might lose in, during the primaries, but it turns out he won. Well, okay, let's break that down. We thought he might lose, and we were right. He only won by 44,000 votes in the Electoral College. People are just not, 44,000 votes is nothing. It's, it's a, a microscopic difference. He almost lost. Why did he almost lose? Because the establishment rallied around a very subpar candidate. If they had not done that, and we had just had a normal primary, Bernie had won the first three states, he would have gone on to been the candidate. And every poll shows that in 2016 and 2020, Bernie would have won by a wide margin. But they can't get themselves to believe that in Washington, because they're like, well, no one in the cocktail circuit thinks that the average American worker should have higher wages. Bernie's got to be wrong. <laughs> Pass the hors d'oeuvres, right? But... but <laughs> But Bernie's a populist. Fetterman's a populist. They go, hey, we, you should get health care. You should get higher wages. By the way, I'm a populist. You should get higher wages. The people in Washington are lying to you. So we went with a crappy establishment candidate and nearly lost. And, and the only reason we won, Kyle, is because Trump is despised. And, but this is and, and he was the incumbent. So all of COVID was hung around his neck. Everything that went wrong was hung around his neck, and the incumbency hurt him. Now, how can you tell that definitively? Because without the uh, imminent incumbency, like the fact that there's been this time now and Biden's the incumbent and not Trump, now all of a sudden Trump has opened up this lead, and he's winning in five out of seven swing states. Why? Because he's not the incumbent. So running the incumbent is, a, generally speaking, not a good idea, especially under this circumstance. So let me ask you something else. So a lot of the criticisms that you just leveled about Biden, that he's establishment, I mean, on a policy level, he doesn't agree with us on a lot of things. Um, and, you know, I think he is a very weak candidate against Trump, although I think there are weaker candidates against Trump. Those are the reasons why Kyle and I have been backing Marianne Williamson, who has a national profile, you know, best-selling author, had her own fan base outside of uh, politics and then, you know, enhanced her national name ID during the uh, presidential primary the last time around. So why isn't it the right move for you to use your gigantic media platform and your, you know, very compelling personal voice and um, your ability to push a, push a message to strongly back Marion Williamson as the candidate to beat Biden in the primary? Okay, great question. So first of all, Marianne Williamson is an excellent person. What the media has done to her is a crime, an injustice that uh, probably will never be re reversed, and it drives me crazy. She has more courage than me. She went in in the beginning. Her policies are terrific. I got nothing against Marianne Williamson. So why am I not doing the strategy that you recommended? Because 
I gave that, what is it, about a year, eight months, nine months, and I was really hoping that that worked. But unfortunately, the media has covered her in so much sludge and slime that she wasn't able to break through. And right now, thinking that she's sitting at 4 to 5% and is somehow miraculously going to break through, it's like, I would love it. I would love it if it were anyone but Biden, right? But it, it hasn't happened yet, and it's not overly likely. But more importantly, guys, if there isn't another strong voice in the race, then she's not going to have a chance. Nobody's going to have a chance. Because if I went in and said, no, it should be Marianne Williamson, the media would go, forget it. We're not having you on. We're not interested. She's kooky. You, I, we're disqualifying her. And if you're trying to speak out for her, we won't even allow you on the air. Okay? So, in, but when I run, I'm a successful businessman. I've got a big media company. I set up uh, Justice Democrats. I mean, come on. Kyle and I were co-founders of a of a wing of the Democratic Party. And when we did that, everybody said it was impossible. There's no way that you could do that. And then we did it. And there's 11 Justice Democrats sitting in Congress now because of the actions that we took. So when I come in as another progressive that is super loud and aggressive making this case, it doesn't hurt Marianne. It could potentially help Marianne. Here, let me lay out that scenario real quick. What's my main thesis? That if we put enough pressure on Biden, he will realize, oh, I could this could hurt my legacy. So I, I'm going to drop out because I don't want to lose to Trump and then be considered the worst politician in American history, right? The one who lost the country on his watch, right? So he drops out. And then you have all the governors come in. I'm perfectly happy to have that competition. I think they definitely should come in. And then we go to a debate. They, they can't stop a debate when there's no incumbent. And then I can make a case against Governor Newsom, and she can make a case against Governor Bashir, and we're in the ball game. But we need to have a ball game first. But and Gentino as things were standing, the status quo was not leading to a ball game. But you know, you talk about what the media did to Marianne. Like we also know what the media did to you in your congressional run. It's not like they were like, "Oh, look at this serious businessman with this media empire." They were like, "Let me pull up an out of context compilation of you know all of this stuff to smear him as some racist, horrible person." Yeah. So, Crystal, but isn't it super interesting that they didn't do that so far this time around? So this, my idea, and no one believed me when I said this too, and so far this first part, there's many parts, but this first part has been pretty good. When I announced, instead of getting the jank treatment for when I ran in Congress, oh, anti-Muslim, even though he's Muslim, and every freaking line in the world, right? They instead were like, well, you know, he's a naturalized citizen. That makes it less likely. But it's an interesting and compelling case about how Biden's going to lose. Like Axios, Politico, uh, Washington Times, which is a little bit conservative, Newsweek. Like almost every outlet is, has said, uh, HuffPost, Daily Beast, Daily Beast hates progressives. And Daily Beast were like, well, it makes a good point about Biden. So my thesis, guys, was the zeitgeist is right right now for the mainstream media using me for their purposes. And they are beginning to panic on the deck of the Titanic. So they're using me as a proxy for that panic, which is what I anticipated. And so far, I've been right about that. So I'm trying to, in this case, in this, and only in this case, is the mainstream media on our side. So now, will they then later attack me? Yes 
if I get close to winning. Like in the scenario where Biden drops out, I win the court cases, we're all in a, in a free-for-all primary. Yes, and of course the press will turn around and say, oh, Jake Uger, oh my God, did you know he's brown, but white, but brown, but white, and that both are terrible, okay? Mm -hmm. And they'll say every insane thing in the world. But that's only if you get close to power. So for now, I'm very happy to have them use me as, well, look at this guy doing pretty well, okay? And maybe shows Biden's weakness. Exactly. So, I mean, what I fully expect is basically the Marianne treatment as we move forward. So it'll either be utter indifference, or if you start to make enough noise, then they'll turn it over to just rank smear jobs. Did it give you pause getting in the race when, you know, because you've been doing TYT for so long. You were, I mean, you were back on Air America during the Air America days, and there was a time when the Young Turks was not only news and politics, but you also were like sort of half Howard Stern as well. Did it give you pause like, hey, if I start making any noise whatsoever, they're going to unleash the hounds of hell on my face here because they just have to dig through the TYT archives, which, by the way, a lot of awesome stuff in the TYT archives. <laughs> I love it, right? But I think they're probably, don't you think they're going to like either utter indifference or we're going to move to just like relentless smears? Yeah. Uh, come for me, bro. Come and find <laughs> out. Come and find out. So he, look, uh, it's a different day than it was in 2020. So in 2020, it was the height of like hysteria over anyone who said anything wrong when they were 13 or a zygote or whatever invented fantasy that they used to character assassinate every single person. It's not to say that they won't do the same things. It's will it work? So, so, and, and by the way, last time around, because of the, the cultural, uh, you know, atmosphere, I was not, I did not have the same attitude I have now. And my attitude now is you found something from the 1990s that I said wrong. Yeah. Congratulations. Okay. So it turns out people change their minds as they grow up and mature. Wow. Like, okay, go tell me that you didn't say something wrong when you were 19 years old or whatever the hell it was, right? Come on. And everybody, like, even Kyle, even when I was most attacked, both when we started Just Democrats and when I ran for Congress, in the beginning, the right wing online first started as, ha ha. And by the end, they were like, wait, that's like way less severe than things I've said. Like, wait, does that disqualify you from public office for a freaking joke you made in your 20s? No. Okay. So I so I don't think it's going to be nearly as effective. And uh, and then second of all, I'm also done apologizing. A lot all the bullshit that they found were like, oh, he made an inappropriate joke. Yeah, it's called a joke. Look into it, idiots. So so for here, I'll give you two examples. Even in the old blogs from the 1990s, I said, joke, I wrote a whole blog about how it was funny that I couldn't get laid in South Beach. That was the butt of the joke was me. And at the end, I conclude by saying, well, of course the problem isn't me. It's that the uh, genes of women are inferior. They should want to have as much sex as I do. It's an <laughs> obvious joke, right? And every idiot in mainstream media is like, I think he was serious. I think he thinks women are inferior. And he said that in his 20s. He should be disqualified. No, I'm not taking that shit. I'm going to fight back and say, look, if you can't understand a joke about yourself, 
then there's something wrong with you. You're not very bright. You shouldn't be a journalist. So, I mean, you know how badly they smeared me. They said that I brought on David Duke to share his anti-Semitic views yeah, when I called him an right. anti-Semite, a racist, a bigot yeah. to his mm -hmm. face, etc. So this time I fight back. And if you if you want to make uh, take jokes and pretend they were real, I'm going to obliterate you. You got media, I got media. How is the uh, TYT fam reacting to the run? Mixed. <laughs> I'm the most honest <laughs> man in America. Honest. Are yeah. you saying are you saying fellow uh is staffers or are you saying uh, audience? Oh no no, the audience loves it. Jankforamerica.com. Okay. okay. Look, here's the reason why and I'll get to the hard question in a second. Um here's the reason why the audience loves it because get caught trying. Like we tell people there's hope in the world and and we're the hope. I don't mean we as a Young Turks. I don't mean we as in the three of us. I mean we as in collectively, the audience, the average person. If you don't fight, then, then there is no hope. But if you try and try and try, and you're relentless, and you're like Rocky, and you just keep getting back up and getting back up, you're going to win. Relentless always works. If there's no hope, everything dies. If there's hope, anything is possible. So yeah, the audience wants it because they want someone to get caught trying. Their number one problem with progressives in D.C. is that they won't try. They keep laying down and laying down. For God's sake, get up. Get up. We put you in office to get up and get caught trying. So jenkforamerica.com. I got no issues there. And raise good money. Uh, and, and we're going to take this fight to them in 100 different ways. You can see, do I look like I'm backing down 1%? Hell no. We're going to take this fight to them. I'm going to win this fight. Now, I'm very honest on air. I... That's, that's a hilarious thing to have your brand be honesty, but but it kind of is, right? So in terms of the staffers, no, there's people who are were worried, and they're worried for the reasons that you guys laid out, and it's not illegitimate. They say, look, Jenk, they're going to look through the archives, they're going to misquote you, they're going to take all of us out of context. They're going to say that, you know, they're going to take the jokes and pretend we were serious. I mean, look, there's an old joke uh, from politics back in the day of, like, if you get close enough to power, I don't, they'll say you were sleeping with a girl, then you'll say you were sleeping with a guy, and then by the end they say you're sleeping with a donkey, right? That you're a donkey fucker, right? They literally did that to me. I'm not, sure if, joke. I, I'm not sure if I've heard that quote, but anyway. Yeah, I like it, though. I'm going to start using it. <laughs> donkey fucker is glorious. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, from LBJ or something, I'm, I'll look it up for you guys next time. Okay. okay. So what a boss. And then they took a joke where I said, with the horse mind, no, right? And they're like, oh, he meant it. He meant it. Bestiality is part of his platform, right? So now I'm unfazed by it because everybody who says that is either purposely lying and trying to deceive their own audience in a sick and disgusting way, New York Times. Um, okay. You might, be able to get way, the, uh, you might be able to get the Libertarian nomination on that uh, platform, though. <laughs> just, a, just a thought. You, you know what I say to that, hey, Crystal? Yay! <laughs> no, he said it again! He said it again! He did a horse voice! Oh, I know it! <laughs> okay. so, yeah, but... I get the folks at TYT who go, ah, man, now we're going to have to go through that pain again, right? Where the rest of the media all pretends that instead of being the most progressive show and the biggest progressive network, that we're all right-wing racist and sexist. So I, I'm sorry that I'm putting them through that. I really am. 
But guys, if at some point, in order for us to win, and what does win mean? Deliver for the average American instead of the powerful. We're going to have to take on the powerful. And the powerful aren't going to give away their power because you asked nicely. They're going to fight back. So if we all shrink from the fight because we're worried that the powerful are going to fight back and hurt us, well, then no one ever fights the powerful, and then we have no chance at all. So I'll take the pain. I'll take the hurt. But somebody's got to fight against this. So that's why I'm doing it. So what do you think your chances are of winning the, the case on whether or not you can run? Do you think that the conservative Supreme Court will agree with your argument? Or do you think they'll say, nah, that's an extrapolation of a case that was adjacent, but not exactly this? Yeah. So let's uh, break this down uh, in a couple of different ways. First of all, uh, let's talk morally uh, and logically, and then I'll get to legal, okay? So morally, it's indefensible to say that naturalized citizens are not loyal to the country, and we can't trust them, and we should treat them as second-class citizens. So it, Arnold Schwarzenegger, born outside the country, do we think he's going to hand the country over to the Austro-Hungarian Empire? <laughs> do we think he's going to give the country over to the Habsburg dynasty? Okay, this is insanity. I'll give you an example of a right-winger, Patrick Bet-David. He's an Armenian Christian uh, born in Iran. His family flees Iran in the middle of the Iranian Revolution because they're afraid that they're going to get killed as Christians in Iran. He comes here, loves the country, sets up a business, in the 101st Airborne, right? Risks his life for the country. But we think he might be loyal to Iran instead? That's crazy. And that's definitely discrimination. And that's definitely irrational and unacceptable. And, and guys, when I say discrimination, sometimes people catch feelings. They're like, oh, jank. No, naturalized citizens are second-class citizens. You guys shouldn't be trusted. You should never be president, and you should take that lying down. And that's not discrimination. Ha ha. No, sorry. Look, I'm not like mortally wounded by it. I'm not crying in a corner. But is it discrimination? Of course it is. It's preposterous to say it's not discrimination. And by the way, if you're not a, a naturalized citizen, mate, you probably never thought of this issue in your whole life, and 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 it doesn't affect you, and you're kind of puzzled by it. But go ask a friend who's a naturalized citizen whether they like being second-class citizens whether they think it's fair. Ted Lieu, he's a United States congressman, he's a colonel in the United States Air Force. But we say to him, no, you can't serve as president because we think you might be disloyal and serve Taiwan instead. He moved here when he was three. He grew up in Cleveland. He's a colonel in the US Air Force. This idea is morally and logically completely unacceptable. Now, when you turn to the legal side of it, everybody goes, can't you read the Constitution? It says it right there in the original Constitution. You can't run for president, okay? You know what else it says in the original Constitution? That black people are three-fifths of a person. We can, I can turn around and go, can't you read? It's in the original Constitution. The fact that it's in the original Constitution doesn't mean anything. The question is, did it get amended? Well, what do you think the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment were? They gave due process and equal protection to all Americans. They didn't say equal protection, except for those dastardly naturalized citizens who are obviously disloyal and should not be trusted. Why would anybody assume that? 
So let me get this right. The argument from the other side is that the 14th Amendment gave equal protection to everyone. Of course it did. It took away all the discriminatory parts of the original U.S. Constitution, except we're supposed to assume that in their minds, even though they never wrote it down, they had an asterisk, equal protection, except naturalized citizens who should always remain second-class citizens with less rights than us. That is an absurd interpretation. So we're gonna take that to the court, and maybe, guys, look, as absurd as their interpretation is, maybe they win. But right now, we're already in the popular mythology and in conventional wisdom, we quote unquote can't run. So I have nothing to lose. So even if the court says you can't run, we're at the same exact place we are today where everybody screams at you, you can't run, you're not as good as us, you're not as American as us, stay second class. So that remains the same if I lose. But I got at least a 50% chance of winning. And if I win, I free 25 million Americans and they finally feel like they're 100% American and accepted by this country. So just to be clear, would you predict a win, loss, or you're agnostic? A win, definitely a win. Because gotcha. Kyle, here's the Supreme Court already said in that case that you're talking about, Schneider v. Rusk, they said na uh, naturalized citizens have the same exact rights. They said treating them as second-class citizens would be unconstitutional. So it was not about the presidential race. It was about a different law that they had passed against naturalized citizens. But they declared discriminating against naturalized citizens in any way is totally unconstitutional. So, okay, the Supreme Court could say, sorry, they meant it's totally unconstitutional, except this one thing where we do actively make you second-class citizens, right? But I don't think they will. And there's two reasons why. One. At that point, they have to affirmatively say, we're making up a clause in the 14th Amendment that it's equal protection except for naturalized citizens. And we're telling you, you're not really Americans. So that is a hell of a thing to say. So I'm going to force them to a decision on that. But hold on. If you think, well, of course they will. They're conservatives. Yes, but remember, it's not just about me. You know who else is in that 25 million? Yes, Arnold Schwarzenegger is in that 25 million. There are many other people. I mean, I don't like it's I'm afraid he's like Rumpelstiltskin, and if I say his name, he'll appear. But Elon Musk is a naturalized citizen. <laughs> okay. And so there are I'm, I'm now opposed to your presidential run deck. <laughs> I know, I know. That's why I'm, I'm... but guys, guys, do you, do you <laughs> think let, let me ask you something. Let's say I'm going to the Supreme Court, which I'm almost certainly at. You don't think Arnold joins the case? You don't think Elon Musk joins the case? You don't think other 25 million Americans go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let them lose. It's okay. I don't I don't need equal rights. I don't need people to think I'm a full American. It's okay. No, they're going to join the case. And then we're going to have a Supreme Court deciding not whether I could run, but whether Arnold Schwarzenegger can run. And then all of a sudden, the dynamic flips. Do you think the Supreme Court is going to think that I'm going to win the presidency? They're not going to think that at all. But do they think that maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger can win the presidency? Yeah. So then all of a sudden it becomes a right wing case and we're much more likely to win. So um, for me personally, I think I'm going to support Senator Bob Menendez for his demonstrated loyalty <laughs> to our country. That's uh, who I'm throwing in with. So <laughs> but, but that goes. But by the way, that's in our legal memo, Crystal, not Menendez. But that's, we should add that. But so wait, Menendez, who stuffs uh, money and gold bullion into his pockets and serves Egypt, is more loyal than we are. 
Donald Trump, who did a coup against this country, is more loyal than we are, the January 6th guys can run for president. And they literally raided our capital and tried to overthrow our democracy. And they're more loyal to the country than we are? Oh, hell no. I'm going to unite 25 million Americans, and we're going to fight back, and we're going to win. Jenkforamerica.com. So, Jenk, what is going to be different here than the congressional run? What gives you the confidence to think that you're going to do better than Marianne? Because, frankly, I mean, she does have uh, outside of politics a large national profile. You know, she's been in there doing the work on the ground in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, in Michigan, in Iowa, and all of these places, building out a campaign staff, going on podcasts, going on media, making her case. And, you know, I think she's at around like six, seven, eight percent of the polls. Um, um, there hasn't been the left is very fractured. There hasn't been any unified push behind her. So why do you think that it'll be different for you? All right. First of all, I'm not saying anything against Marianne. She's a wonderful person. Uh, second of all, you say she has a, a big national profile. Um, Young Turks gets five billion views a year. She's I think a best I got an national. Now. Yeah, she's a book, but she was a national bestselling author. So was I. I, Justice I is coming, say, just came I'm just out. saying that it's not like she doesn't have a national profile. She does. And, you know, she, she was in the I'm race first. There was Marianne. an opportunity for her to but, consolidate the left. But the left is so fractious and divided in some ways so nihilistic that it just hasn't come together. No, no, I'm not saying that she doesn't have a national profile. I think she does. But I, it, but I would say that my national profile is at least equal to hers. And so, okay, and if you say, well, that's not enough, Okay, good news. I've got a lot more. <laughs> so, uh, Crystal, there. my strategy is go on shows like yours, go on every show that'll take me, and not in, in the online world, a lot of shows will take me, okay? Because why? We have interesting conversations like this, and their audience goes, whoa, that's super interesting. I hadn't heard that before. And it does really, really well, right? So I'm going to go grassroots, and I'm going to go all over media, left-wing media, right-wing media, middle media, whatever you got, and I'm going to scream from the rooftops. I'm Paul Revere. Joe Biden's going to lose. Joe Biden's going to lose. Joe Biden's going to lose.com, okay, until we push that guy out of the race. And then when I push that guy out of the race, do you think that people are going to be like, oh, yeah, I thought it was impossible for him to push Biden out of the race. He did it. But no, no, I'm not interested. I thought it was impossible that he could run for president, but he won the Supreme Court case. But still, no, there's no way that he could win. My guess is at some point, if those things happen, people are going to go, huh, wait a minute. I wonder if he could win. And, and here's another giant part of it. Guys, I make a case for a living, right? I do. My day job is to convince people on policy issues, on moral issues, legal issues, et cetera, right? So I'm going out there saying, I'm only going to pass things that are popular. And the other politicians won't do it. They won't do it under penalty of law. Paid family leaves at 84%. Why isn't it passed? 74% of Republicans want it. That's because the Democrats and the Republicans are corrupt. They work for their corporate donors. You know what, what percentage of the country believes that? 90%. So I'm going to run the media obstacle course that is necessary to win this race. I don't know that there's anyone better at running that media obstacle course than me. But if it turns out I run that media obstacle course and I get annihilated, right? And they do the polls and I start at 2% and I end at 2%. Okay, then I gave it my best uh, shot. I got caught trying, but I but then I have an I rest easy when fascism comes 
and 330 million other people ask, oh, what did I do to prevent it? And their answer is nothing. I just sat on my ass and I supported the dear leader because I was ta taught to obey. I was taught to bow my head and support whichever dumbass leader uh, that some guy in Washington picked. Uh, but there's only two people who are going to get to say they tried everything to make sure we didn't lose to Trump. And that's me and Marianne Williamson. All right, so let's uh, let's wrap it up with some uh, policy questions here. So I know back in the day you were a supporter of the public option for health care, but then you backed Bernie twice. You were a big advocate of Medicare for all. But when I went to jenkforamerica.com, one of the policies listed is public option. So are you mm. running on the public option or are you running on Medicare for all? So um, great question. Number one, am I in favor of Medicare for all? Absolutely, 100%. So why do I put public option instead of Medicare for all? Because if I get elected, I'm just going to go down the list of the most popular positions in America, and I'm going to give it to the American people, okay? So you want paid family leave the most. Why? Because I can see polling, and that polls the highest. So I'm going to give you paid family leave so moms can take 12 weeks off. And you see my attitude here. Does it look like I'll be bothered by the parliamentarian? No, I will get the parliamentarian fired the first day and if anybody messes with the uh, us and says oh no filibuster this or that i'm gonna hurt them politically and they're either they're gonna win but the whole country's gonna know they represent corporate america and they made it so that moms cannot take any time off when they have a baby and that villain's name is joe manchin and i'm gonna shame them until their polling is down at 12 percent i'm gonna crush them politically until we get what you want and not what the politicians want and what the donors want so public option polls excellent and there's and even conservatives go well i mean it's just an option man i don't need to do the government option uh if my private options are brilliant and awesome although none of them are i'll stick with them so that's why it polls well with republicans and democrats but no politician will give it to you because it'll hurt the healthcare com insurance companies and the drug companies. It'll prevent more of their robberies, right? So I start with public action. But think about it, Kyle. Imagine I got paid family leave passed, $15 minimum wage, bring up everybody's wages, got the public option passed. We're rolling because these are all super popular policies, and I'm putting a spotlight on them with the biggest bully pulpit there is. Then you've built up the momentum to be able to pass Medicare for all. Instead, if you went in and you didn't act strategically and you went for the hardest one, and why is it the hardest? Because it's not popular? No, it's the hardest because that's where all of the drug companies and all the insurance companies will spend every dollar they have buying every politician to defeat you, right? You've got to work your way up to that strategically. That's not a 30-year plan, hell no. But once you've passed these popular bills that nobody thought could be passed, then you've got enough momentum and leverage to go, now let's do Medicare for All. And good news, Medicare for All also polls really well. So Anna asked you a similar question in her interview with you, but I just want to clarify your position here. Um, will you accept big money donations? Will you accept corporate PAC money, super PAC money, et cetera? Yeah, so guys, super PACs, corporate PAC money is the worst thing in the world. And so I, the first political organization I ever uh, started was Wolfpac. And uh, so now that leads to an interesting point. So Wolfpac is meant to get money out of politics, fights for a constitutional amendment, 
to uh, make sure that we end private financing of elections. So, but at the same time, Wolf Pack's a super PAC. So is that some sort of irony? Well, yeah, it's an irony. Does that mean it's hypocrisy? No. In my ideal world, the PACs that I started, Wolf Pack, Rebellion Pack, even Justice Democrats, get so strong, so powerful, and, and this is actually the plan, and it was the plan from a dozen years ago when I started Wolf Pack, that we use the Achilles heel of the system against it, that they raise so much money and defeat everyone who's against money in politics to the point where the politicians throw up their hands and go, we got to end super PACs just so we can end Wolf Pack, so, just so we can end Rebellion Pack, we got, so that they can get our money out of politics. So you could say, well, that's unrealistic. You could say, I don't like that pathway. I just, I'm going to convince them with pretty please. You, God bless your hearts. I love you. Try in any way you can to defeat the system. That's my way of defeating the system. So what, if I was at the DNC, would I have voted for the proposal that they had recently to ban super PACs from Democratic primaries? Absolutely. But they didn't pass that proposal. So now I'm not going to do unilateral disarmament and go, okay, Joe Biden and everybody else and their uncle gets to have giant super PACs, but I'm not going to. No, if super PACs come in on my side, which by the way, is not enormously likely, but I'm being honest and I'm being principled and I'm telling you, yes, I would allow the super PACs. And if I win, my first priority is get the goddamn money out of politics. Yeah, I mean, I just, I feel conflicted in the sense that I feel like you might raise more money by saying, look, I'm only taking small dollar donations. You know, like I have a hard cap and make it even less than what the legal limit is. I have a hard cap at $500. You know what I mean? You don't think it's possible you raise more money that way? Look, uh, there's no one beating down my door to give millions of dollars right now. And and none of this is going to happen with corporations. No corporation is going to give me a dollar, right? I'm a billion percent against corporate PACs. And Kyle, you know, uh, the only rule we had at Just Democrats is that you can't take corporate PAC money, Okay. So, but it is possible, especially in this fight, given the naturalized citizen issue, given the significant legal costs that the campaign will have, that at some point, some folks in that 25 million Americans go, yeah, no, I want Jenk to win this case. So I'm going to do whatever it takes, legal defense fund, give to his campaign through a super PAC, whatever it is, you can't give to the campaign, you just run a super PAC that helps, right? And they want to spend millions of dollars to help, I'm not going to say no. Uh, now, if everybody says no, 100%, no, I would end it instantly. I think the way that they give, it, realistically, what actually happens is corporate PACs give hundreds of millions of dollars to corrupt politicians. Sorry, I hate to hurt your feelings if you're a Biden fan, including Joe Biden. The ExxonMobil's PAC isn't giving to people like Joe Biden because they think that he's a sweetheart. They're giving it to him so he'll approve the Willow Pipeline and every other pipeline there is, and mission accomplished, he did. So, so if you say, hey, no, I, I don't like that there's some people that might help your campaign eventually, and you're saying you're okay with that, I hear you. That would actually be the most principled thing you could say against my campaign. All right, great, then support another candidate, but Joe Biden's going to lose.com. All right, so final two questions. First one, this is a little difficult. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but tell me the best thing Joe Biden did and the worst thing Joe Biden did. Oh, okay, yeah, so relatively easy. So 
And that's not putting me on the spot. It, like, people are used to professional politicians who uh, just sit there and lie and make the world seem like a black and white thing. Everything Joe Biden did is evil because I'm running against him and terrible, and nothing he did is good. No, that's absurd. So, for example, what did Joe Biden do well? He's actually pretty great on jobs. Uh, so uh, Donald Trump, to be fair, pre-COVID, created 6.4 million jobs. That's not that bad. Joe Biden created in the same time period, three years, 14 million jobs. It's the lowest unemployment we've ever had. If you don't give him credit for that, you're being dishonest. So, and by the way, the polling shows that Joe Biden is down 19 points on jobs when he created twice as many jobs as Trump. The guy cannot run, man. He's an awful candidate. But he was good on jobs. He His National Labor Relations Board is great. I mean, if you watch the Young Turks, you'll see, I mean, you want to go into our archives, you'll see plenty of times where I give Joe Biden credit. Uh, the student debt relief, it was a bit of a fake attempt in the beginning, but at least he gave 10% of uh, students actual debt relief. That's better than nothing. It's better than what the Republicans would have done. And I can go on and on. Now, what are the bad things that Joe Biden has done? Well, uh, first of all, $15 minimum wage, he flat out lied to everyone. He said he was in favor of it. He was definitely not, not in favor of it. The very first interview he did was at the Super Bowl right after uh, inauguration, and he threw $15 minimum wage uh, under the bus and said, oh, that one's not going to happen. Let me just, just hey, Jenk, let me just interject for one sec real quick. You're right about that nationally. I just also want to point out for everybody, he did sign an executive order to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour for all federal contractors and employees, which is 400,000 workers. But to your point, nationally, you're correct. He didn't do it nationally, but he did the executive order. Go ahead. Yeah, and that's exactly what corporate Democrats do. They give you 1% to 5% change, and then they go, yay, we did it, historic change. 400,000 people is what? 0.1% of the country, if I'm doing the math right, historic. Look, I'll take it. I credit where credit is due. But he definitely threw it under the bus in two different interviews, the Super Bowl yeah. interview and then the different interview that he did. He had the two Delaware senators vote against it. That is a super clear sign where Joe Biden says, fuck the $15 minimum wage. I'm definitely against it. So be honest for a second, Joe Biden. Be honest, you were never in favor of it. Then he said he public option. He never even proposed it. He never even proposed it. It was always a lie. He was never going to go against the drug companies because they donate a good jillion dollars to him. Wake up, snap out of the trance. Corporate politicians serve corporate donors. So, and, and every, look, paid family leave. If you can't get something that's at 84% passed, well, you're saying, I suck at politics. What do you need it to be? 88%, 94%, 98%. What do you need it to be before you get up off your ass and fight for it? The reason he doesn't fight for it is not an accident, and it's not because he's lazy. It's because all of those things affect corporations. And corporations say, you are not to raise my costs by even five cents controlled President Joe Biden. You are to sit down and pass a semiconductor bill that gives corporations over $50 billion in our money and then pretend that it helps the average guy. So he's done, a, and, and then finally, voting rights. These morons. Okay, so first, they promised African-Americans, we're gonna get you voting rights. Remember Georgia? 
in Georgia, they're like, oh, get us these two senators. Uh, we're going to get your voting rights. It's originally called H.R. 1. It's our number one priority. I said, look, half that bill has a 0% chance of passing because it was anti-corruption. It was always a lie. They were never going to do it. The Democrats didn't want to do the anti-corruption parts. But the other half of the bill would have helped Democrats a lot because it just would have allowed more people to vote. It would allow not just more African-Americans, but everybody uh, to, to vote. But when they had a chance to lift the filibuster to pass it, they didn't. And now people, mainstream media will tell you, well, you can't lift the filibuster. Is that right? Because in the first two years, they did lift the filibuster. You know what they lifted it for? Raising the debt ceiling. Because that would have crashed the stock market, and that would have hurt all their donors. So they just told you that corporations in the stock market are more important than black people in this country. That's a fact. They would not move the filibuster for voting rights. So, and, and by the way, part of the reason is because they're liars. They like the gerrymandered districts because all of the people in the House, including all of the Democrats, got elected in a gerrymandered district. So they were never going to do those things. They were lying to you from day one, including Joe Biden. That's why he didn't deliver on that. Now, do you think I'm going to stop if I'm president? No, 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 no. They're going to give you voting rights, and it's not going to be a goddamn question. I will crush right. anything in my path to get that. All right. I'm sorry, Chris. Uh, lastly, more just on that uh, of how Biden is doing, your evaluation of his response to Israel's war on Gaza. So that one's mixed. So he comes in 100% uh, on the side of Israel in the beginning, and that's totally understandable. Uh, so Hamas did something incredibly stupid and immoral, and the attack against Israel was just uh, barbaric. And 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 guys, it's not just that they killed those poor Israeli citizens. It's that they ruined the Palestinian cause. They set it back so long. And by the way, they smear all of us Muslims when they do barbaric things like that. I loathe it. Okay, but then now Israel has done the counteroffensive. And as usual, they have already killed twice as many civilians. So now Biden mixed back. He says, well, don't do that. I mean, we're going to back you 100% and we're going to send you more weapons to do that. One of our audience members wrote in and said that they found out that the bombs being dropped into Gaza were made in Pennsylvania, and they live in Pennsylvania, and it, and it turned their stomach. And so did we work on the bombs that are killing all those children and babies and grandmothers as they indiscriminately drop bombs on top of building after building, residential buildings and buses and schools, et cetera. So at this point, uh, Joe Biden is way too much leaning on the side of Israel rather than the side of peace, the side of innocent civilians, whether they're Israeli or Palestinian. So he started out okay, but right now, uh, the thumb is on the scale for uh, the side that is killing way more civilians right now and is promising to kill more. And let's be honest, cutting off water and electricity and mass relocations are war crimes. And they're not arguable. They're definitely war crimes. And yeah. I didn't sign up for that. I'm not in favor of that. I would never allow that if I was the American president. Yeah, I think he's failing miserably. He, like you say, he's greenlighting a medieval siege and collective punishment and what's basically a genocide now. But final question, uh, best thing Trump did, worst thing Trump did? So, okay, on, 
there was a couple of things that Trump did where I was like, huh, that's not so bad. But Alice Johnson. Trouble... Alice what Johnson. Pa pardoning oh, yeah, Alice, Alice Johnson. Johnson. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, not just Alice Johnson, who he pardoned, who should have been pardoned uh, by the past presidents, et cetera. Uh, but the criminal justice reform bill. First Step Act. Yeah. Not that first bad. Yeah. Yeah. The First Step Act was not that bad. Right. And do you, we think that the Democratic president would have gotten the First Step Act passed? I'm not so sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so if I got no problem giving credit where credit is due, Trump figured out that the best way to run is against corruption, and that's why he did drain the swamp, and that's why he won in 2016. And that that instinct that conservative voters have against corruption, I love it, I support it. They're totally right on that. Now they got 100% misdirected by Trump into even more corruption, so it took a wrong turn. But but that but that idea is great. Okay, so now his worst sides, look. Trump has done a million terrible things, including, by the way, the only major bill he passed, other than the First Step Act, was uh, giant tax cuts for the rich and for corporations. So the mo world's most ironic populist. Like, literally no one has helped corporate America and multinational corporations more than Donald Trump. And by the way, if you don't know, he took $100 million from Sheldon Adelson's super PACs in both 2016 and 2020, and then became Sheldon Adelson's bitch. Oh, he just sat there and did everything Sheldon ordered him to do. That's who Donald Trump is. He's just another servant of the rich and powerful. So, but that's not the worst. Of course, when you're looking at the worst, it's the coup. And there's, so both mainstream media and MAGA guys need to understand that the guys that rushed to building the Capitol on January 6th we're never going to hold the building. That was not the entirety of the coup attempt. If it was, it was that's the world's worst coup attempt, right? No, their job in a plan laid out in memos by John Eastman and others, and that's why they got arrested and that's why they're being tried now, was for those guys to delay the proceedings until the Republicans could declare that we're not sure who won and send it back to the states where the swing states have Republican legislators, legislatures, and those had fake electors ready to go. And there's literally a memo called the fraudulent elector memo. So they wrote it out. These are our fake electors. And so then they send that back to the House, and then the House decides who won in a contested election, but they don't vote based on the number of representatives. They vote based on the states. And the Republicans had more states than the Democrats did. So they laid out a plan for a full-blown coup against this country. And then they executed that plan. And they even considered, they had a three-hour meeting where Michael Flynn proposed martial law and rolling out tanks against the American people and killing anyone who opposed us. And the only reason why they didn't do that part of it, because to be fair to the rest of the people in the Trump administration at the time, they said to Trump, Every one of us will resign if you roll out those tanks. He wanted to do it. He wanted to do it. He's a dictator. He's a fascist. That's not hyperbole. So, And here, I'll upset a bunch of uh, people on the left. Ron DeSantis and, and Nikki Haley are not fascists. They're terrible people for other reasons. But they've never done a coup against America. They, never use, they don't use direct Nazi quotes that Trump does. The only fascist that is an actual threat to democracy is Donald J. Trump. He already tried to end this democracy once, 
And guys, last thing. The other day, he said, immigrants are poisoning the blood of our nation. That quote has only been used by Adolf Hitler and Donald J. Trump. So he's telling you ahead of time, I'm a Nazi. It's not like I didn't warn you. I used absurd Hitler quotes. I pulled them out of history, and I said them for no reason, just to let you know I am a Nazi. He then, remember, he had dinner with Nazis, Nick Fuentes and Kanye West. They had dinner talking about how the Holocaust wasn't so bad, and Hitler was a hero. Those are things Fuentes has said. Those are things Kanye West has said. He happily had dinner with those Nazis. And when the Nazis marched and said the Jews will not replace us, he said there are good people on the Nazi side. How many times does he have to tell you that he's a Nazi before you believe him? Please run a great candidate against that guy. Don't run a terrible, wounded candidate thinking, I hope it'll be all right. So is, is, does Donald Trump have bad sides? He has the worst sides I have ever seen of anyone in political life in my lifetime in America. And, and, and to run a weak candidate against him is a crime. It's a crime against this country. All right, Cenk Uger, head of TYT, presidential candidate. Uh, tell everybody where they can see you, what they can do for you, and all I think that. he might have mentioned a website a few times. Yeah, that's, they... yeah, so, that's true. Look, guys, when I normally come on, I'll tell you to watch TYT. You know, before when I was, uh, you know, doing the book tour, I would have told you about the book. I'm not telling you any of that right now. I'm telling you, JenkForAmerica.com, Biden'sGonnaLose.com. You got to, you got to help. The minute we get to a real number especially me, the fact that it's a long shot candidate, if I get to a high number, it will make them panic more. Get me to 20 to 25, and we're going to get a great candidate, and we're going to beat the fascists. Thank you so much for your time, man. We really appreciate Good it. Good to see you, Jenk. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you, guys. Take care. All right, that was Jenk Uger. Uh, man, that guy has a personality, doesn't he? <laughs> he is... <laughs> I don't need to say anything. There's only I'll, one mode with him. I ask a question, and then I'll just sit back. Put some lemonade, <laughs> relax, let him go, you know? Um, so uh, a couple points come to mind when we were going through the policy stuff at the end. Like, I generally agree with the idea. Like, he said, oh, I'm going to run on, I'm just going to take what's popular and run on that. I think, like, 85% of the time, that's the correct thing to do. I think there are instances every now and then, though, where you actually do want to sort of buck what's quote-unquote popular. Mm. Just give a couple examples, like the death penalty. Polls well in the United States. It's, it's a majority of Americans yeah. want it, but we kill 4% people who didn't even commit the crime, so that's like state-sanctioned murder. So yeah. I, that's one where I'd be like, I think you have a constitutional right to not get murked by the state when you didn't do anything wrong. He's clearly right? not running on policy, really. I mean, he's just running on Biden is going to lose. We have to do something about Trump. Like, that's clearly, I mean, his, if you look at his website, he's got, like, four things listed, you know, just bare bones, like, paid family leave, public option, anti-corruption, one other thing, and that's it. And, you know, when he's making the case for himself, it's not like, we need a progressive, and here's things we need to deliver for the American people. It's just literally, we have this threat at the gates, we're headed to an iceberg, Joe Biden's a disaster. Yeah. That's that's the whole of the case. He's I so feel like the policy is very irrelevant, honestly. He's so convinced that Biden can't win. 
Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I agree with him. Biden's not a strong candidate, but there are worse candidates. Stronger than Kamala, stronger than Pete, and I would bet anything on that. When I looked at that, because I pulled that up in real time, the like, okay, Democratic primary numbers without Biden, and it's like number one Kamala, number two Hillary Clinton, and number three Pete. I was like, uh, yeah, when I, I see don't that, know. it's like those are three people I definitely want less than Biden. On every level. On every level. On, on, electability, on electability level. level and on policy. Definitely on a policy right. level. So I'm not as convinced as, I'm just not as convinced as I'm on that. Like, I'm sympathetic to the idea, yes, he's weak. Yeah, I think it's objectively correct yeah, to say he's weak. Sure. But I definitely think Trump is weaker than he thinks Trump is. Yeah. I think the 91 criminal charges, he was just found liable of fraud. He was just found liable of fraud. Like, that's a big deal. Yeah. He's got to pay a fine that might be up to $250 million. If that was, if that was Ron DeSantis... That, oh, he was just found uh, liable of fraud. Everybody would be like, oh, dig his political grave. He's done. It's only because it's Trump and we're so conditioned. Yeah. That is Teflon Don that we think like, nah, this doesn't. It is a big deal. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I also, it's just, it's hard for me to imagine how he pulls off more in the polls than Marianne's been able to, frankly. It just, it's hard for me to see that path because, you know, the things that he's saying about, I'll go on everywhere that'll have, like she did that. You know, and she got in early and she's built on a campaign and, you know, it partly I think has to do with not her personal characteristics, but where the left is right now and this sense of impending doom with regard to Trump. Like, I think a lot of people are convinced, like, we just got to fall in line behind Biden and that's the only option. So. I, and media, like I, I think media is a big factor, too. Media is a huge yeah. factor. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've really shut her out and they're doing the same to Jenk. You know, it's not, I mean, he mentioned a number of articles, but it's especially right now with what's going on in Israel and Palestine, like that's oh, dominating yeah. everything, you know? So anyway, I, like I said to him, it takes a lot of courage to um, step out and do something. It is very difficult. It's very humbling. It's very, you know, it's hard to take. Like there are clearly people in his life that he mentioned in the TYT network who are not excited about him running or very concerned about Which what it's going to mean. I don't blame them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't blame them. <laughs> you know, so um, so anyway, I I have a lot of um, affection towards Jank. He gave you your start. He helped us out uh, at Rising when we were getting off the ground. I think this is going to be a very difficult task, and I see a lot of obstacles ahead. I should, you know what we should ask him? Hmm. Hey, if this doesn't work out, 2028? <laughs> you going to try that? <laughs> that would have been an interesting question, you know? But anyway. I guess. We'll probably get to talk to him again, so I we can so. ask him that time. All right. Well, there you have it, guys. Uh, thank you for listening to us, as always. Um, if you haven't yet signed up on Substack to support the show, you could sign up for free and then get the audio podcast version of the show on Saturdays, or you could sign up and pay $5 a month, and you get the video of every interview, debate, show, and you get it a day early, which would be Fridays. Remember, we don't take a dime of uh, corporate money, ad money, uh, we don't read ads and none of that stuff. It's all funded by you guys from the ground up, particularly for this show. Like there's literally there's not even like pre-roll ads. You know what I mean? There's nothing. It's just the people. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we uh, we appreciate any support you might give. We love you guys and we will talk to you soon.